This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Sometimes they sang just to lighten their burdens. There was no hope, Dr. Gray Carr, no hope. That was the voice of Ophelia Settle Egypt that you shared with me this morning. Let me say thank you. Uh, in addition to the 50,000 books, you also have about 50,000 albums. <laughs> not nearly that many. I'm not, a, I'm not as great an album collector, but I do have. In fact, let me get up and get it while we're talking about it because I have had this thing. I was moving some albums the other day and unpacking something I've had now for the better part of the decade, which is a little unit where you can transfer stuff, uh, vinyl to uh, digital form. And those of you who are vinyl folk know you'd rather have the record. And uh, uh, Miss Settle decided, Miss Settle Egypt decided, yeah, I need to, I need to talk to people uh, tomorrow. So, uh, and it's only maybe this is a few. I had a few hundred here. Everything else is in storage, and I and just so happened that you know, as I'm picking up and placing, this one came to hand. This is called Raggedy Thorns. <laughs> <laughs> Raggedy Thorns. Slave narratives performed by Ophelia Settle Egypt. Spirituals performed by the Ophelia Settle Egypt uh, Heritage Singers of the First Baptist Church of Highland Park. So we don't worry about copyright infringement because you got to find it to put a copyright infringement on it. <laughs> and uh <laughs> find it anywhere. I was like, Dr. Cook, wait, well, this, 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 this is out of the DMV. In fact, let's look at her. <laughs> let's look at her right there. There's Ophelia Egypt settle. Her son actually brought this ivory 
Egypt Jr. brought this to fruition. Um, and for those who have not yet subscribed to Narrative, please sign up. And young people and folks who don't have the capital, we've got scholarships. Please do that because we talked extensively very early on last year as we started about the battle over memory. That's what we're talking about today. One mm -hmm. of the things. And clearly this ancestor said, I have some words on that. Because if you remember, uh, for those of you who remember who have been with us all along, we talked. Hmm. Yeah, I pulled it. Let me see if I can reach it here. Oh, in fact, let me start with another point of entry to give folks a place where you can begin to think about this. Um, While you're looking, I just want to. Just, yeah, I want people to sit in it for a minute. You know, imagine for 400 years, you had the opportunity to tell people who they were, who they are, how they've always been. You got to codify it in books and then regurgitate it and push it into schools all over the globe and then force people to take tests to memorize your history that they have bastardized and stripped away. Imagine that. Imagine that for 400 years. And then, and then, and then, you know, you master their history and you finish the top. I just want to just spend a little, just a minute today, uh, just evoking the names. I'm going to say their names. Uh, Akiria Washington and Layla Temple, uh, 2021 Valedictorian and Salutatorian at West Point High School in Mississippi. Big up. Uh, yes, they, they finished first and second, mastering somebody else's version of who they are. <laughs> now, were you close to the top of your class, Professor Hunter? Yeah, I was actually. Okay, uh, well then let me say to you and to those two sisters, <laughs> yes. no matter how high, no matter how high I get, I'll still be looking up to you. That's what I would have been singing in high school from the back row as a C student, looking up at y'all feet saying, go ahead. So, so go ahead, the three of y'all black women. Listen, <laughs> even that though, not good enough. Not good enough because parents were angry. Their their kids, yeah, parents at this West Point High School, and then West Point is uh, predominantly black, mostly black, northern eastern part of Mississippi. Oh, it's black. Okay. Yeah, mostly black. Uh, but the white kids' parents were angry because they felt that they didn't calculate the scores right, and their oh, children. Cassidy. They've been following their children's progress since seventh grade, and they know that they should be. Valedictorian and salutatorian. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. yeah so so that only human beings should count toward figuring GPAs and black people are not human. So yeah, that was a mistake. So what they do about it? Um, so the superintendent, who happened to be black, decided mm -hmm. to uh, recalibrate and then yes. discovered that you know there were exactly two white people, and so they made them co-valedictorian and little co jangle leg math, jangle leg math, got the GPAs up and what. How many now? Wait, I'm confused. Well, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. It's a you know two two that they should have been also two white kids and their parents, you know, because these GPAs matter because history and and you know accomplishments matter in this country. So you need to have that on your record, and it can't go to these two black girls, Ikeri Washington and Layla Temple. Right. They, they can't have that. My my child. And I'm not even gonna name the white children. They can go ahead and kick kick rocks, but. I bring this up because yeah, I mean it's not the children, right? It's their parents. Right. Actually, it's the children and their parents, because they could have the children could have said, "No, don't do that, mom. Don't do that, dad." 
Clearly they didn't. No, because it, it matters, right? Yeah, it's matters to somebody. Yeah. Hopefully not to those two girls and their families enough for them to lose any sleep over a social structure because that's who you are to other people. Come on now. So I listen, you know, we were both you 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 said you were a C student, which is laughable. No question, but they had open admissions at Tennessee State. So you know what? Hey, you saved me. You better say that. Thank what God, because had I been at the top of the class, I might have been at Vanderbilt or the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, or University of Chicago, Harvard, somewhere, still trying to uh, clear my mind of the wreckage. <laughs> you know, might be a Negro senator somewhere defending Joe Manchin. Can never tell. Thank God. Thank so, God. So we, we have this conversation today to remind people uh, of what is at stake here as yes. country battles. So for 400 years, it was okay to muddy the waters with this mythology and fake history and then force us to regurgitate it and then uh, have a metric system by which we have standards, et cetera, and tests and scores and things that will determine whether we go to the next place, right? That's okay for 400 years. They don't want for four weeks to examine that there might be a possibility that there's another alternative narrative about this history, right? Or that their narrative is the alternative narrative. Come on. So another law passed Florida. Hey, Florida, all your schools now. Good job. That's why I'm repping Florida A&M. As a graduate of Tennessee State University, this is right on the border of heresy. But I'm representing the Rattlers today because we're going to open with Florida and a black woman who we saw who went viral for. Hey, shout out to her. I'm not mad at her. We're going to all get in it. And of course, I will say this, though, after my sophomore year at Tennessee State, uh, the brother who was the president of Tennessee State, one of the great educators uh, in living uh, in our living tradition right now, the great Dr. Fred Humphreys uh, left Tennessee State after he had battled white folk for a decade to make sure we got the resources we need and went home to his alma mater, Florida A&M. So we went down for the Florida A&M Tennessee State football game that that fall. And here he pulls up in this president's car, gets out and says, y'all, all right, everybody say, man, how you going to rub it in our face? That was our man's. So even though I'm not a graduate of fam, you know, I rep all the HBCUs, but my man, Frederick Humphreys, shout out to you, brother, that elder, still a, a trained scientist, chemistry, PhD, University of Pittsburgh, but an HBCU Titan. So I'm right, but I'm repping Florida A&M today with an exception because of this story you about to talk about this Florida yeah. story. No, I'm just like pass the baton to you because this is the entry point to talk about this critical race theory uh, in Florida. Uh, no school will be allowed to teach. I don't. <laughs> no, don't, no, it's it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. I, I, All I right. Love it. Just like, are, just like I'm glad that those white parents complained. Because enlighten you know, us. Why are you happy? Well, I'm I'm happy because I don't have an investment in propping up the lie. I I love it when people talk with their chests. So we have to remember that this is a battle over memory. So when we heard our elder and you heard the voice of Ophelia Egypt, that was her voice at the end because she conceived this project. This is a sister who near the end of her life and she didn't, she didn't live on top of the earth long enough to hear what we just heard. That choir named for her sing that song at her home church here in the DMV. She didn't live to hear the uh, the sound of it, but she's an ancestor and just a little bit about her. She's a very, very important figure. And in fact, that's why I pulled the book that I want to mention, because she participated in something that's going to help us understand what we're talking about today. And for those of you, again, who are in narrative, go to our discussion, our extensive discussion about critical race theory. That's not what this is today, although we'll pull some elements and make some connections because part of learning is continuing to repeat 
and then to apply what we've learned to new conditions, new situations. And that's how we reinforce what we've learned. Uh, Ophelia uh, Selegia was born in 1903. She was born in Clark, near Clarksville, Texas. And she got a bachelor's degree from Howard University right down the street in 1925. Got her master's in sociology from University of Pennsylvania in 1928. 1944, she got another a master's from New York School of Social Work. She was a trained social worker. And in fact, she had gone on to complete much of the work toward a PhD at Penn School of Social Work, but she but she didn't continue. Uh, she helped expose the Tuskegee experiment, but she didn't help expose it in 1970s or 60s. Remember, she's born in 1903. She helped expose it while it was going on, at least spread the alarm. She worked with Charles Johnson, and that's where we're coming into this. This is a book by Catherine Stewart called Long Past Slavery. I've mentioned it before, but I want to mention it today. This is a book uh, Professor Stewart has written to, uh, she's at Cornell College. She was at Cornell College when she published this. This was uh, 2016. She wrote this book. In fact, I'll just read from uh, the back. From 1936 to 1939, the New Deal's Federal Writers Project collected life stories from more than 2,300 former African-American slaves. These narratives are now widely used as a source to understand the lived experiences of those who made the transition from slavery to freedom. But in this examination of the project and its legacy, Catherine Stewart shows that it was the product of competing visions of the past as ex-slaves memories of bondage, emancipation and life as freed people were used to craft arguments for and against full inclusion of African-Americans in society. Now, when you read this book, you see there's an intellectual war going on when it comes to black memory. There's always been one, but now you're talking about the 1930s and you're talking about people talk about Franklin Roosevelt is uh, is Joe Biden, Franklin Roosevelt again. Not if he can't get the vote. Shout out to Joe Manchin. You blow dry. Uh, anyway, cold, fake coal miner. Anyway, I won't get into that. But Roosevelt's New Deal policies still had segregation in them. You know, read Ira Cass Nelson's book, When Affirmative Action Was White or Fear Itself, the other his volume that he wrote after that, whether it be the GI Bill after World War II, whether it be the implementation of Social Security, which excluded domestics, which means all those black women didn't get Social Security who worked their whole lives, including uh, our elder who uh, spoke before Congress, who now is 107 years old, who came and testified at Tulsa. Remember, she said, I worked as a domestic, meaning she was excluded from Social Security. So all those projects you study about in high school and middle school that the New Deal, they were still racially segregated. That's one reason Ms. Bethune had to get involved, Mary McLeod Bethune, who was over the Negro Division, National Youth Act. But at any rate, the WPA employed some black people. I mean, you talk about Margaret Walker, you talk about the drama stuff that was going on. He, hell, uh, even Orson Welles worked for him. Uh, you know, but but when it came to recording the memory of that last generation of African people who had endured enslavement, who were children and teenagers who now by the 1930s, some of them were still alive. As you see here, tw more than 2300 of them, the people who interviewed them were white. Now, now y'all know. In fact, this is why this country is so hilarious to me. You know, black people have different conversations with white people. And these Africans had endured enslavement and then apartheid after that, what they call Jim Crow in the United States. So some white, random white boy, white girl comes up, tell us about slavery. Well, you know, master was OK. We had a, in other words, what you want with me? I'm not going to talk to you honestly. But there were outliers and exceptions. One of them, Charles Johnson. 
Very interesting. Robert Park, who was at the University of Chicago, helped train John, uh, helped train Charles Johnson, a sociologist. Also, St. Clair Drake and a lot of these cats, Horace Caton and all them cats. You know, Drake and Caton wrote the book Black Metropolis, uh, looking at the history of and, and the lives of black people in Chicago, kind of an expanded sociological project that follows in the wake of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's brilliant uh, Philadelphia Negro. But at any rate, Park did not subscribe to the theory uh, you know, he had cats like Franz Boas and others. Uh, Park didn't subscribe necessarily to the theory that a lot of what black people had, Negroes as they would call them then, in the United States, culturally had come from Africa. He wasn't a he wasn't a subscriber to that theory, which means he got smoke from Carter Woodson, Zora Hurston, the people who did think that. In fact, uh, Park was very close to Booker Washington. And in fact, this is a good little book by Tyreen Wright called Booker T. Washington in Africa, The Making of a Pan-Africanist. Makes an interesting argument for Booker T. Washington's involvement in Pan-African politics. Uh, Dr. Wright makes the point, he's not Garvey. He's not later on in Krumah. He's not Du Bois and them, although he and Du Bois had a very interesting relationship. In fact, it was a it was a, it was a friendly relationship. You know, he almost worked at Tuskegee. But I'm bringing that up because Park, while he didn't believe that there was an African foundation for Black American culture that had survived, he did believe and train his students to conduct primary research and be participants, I mean, be observers. So in other words, what you find in terms of sociology, you be quiet and listen to the people who you're asking these questions and you don't interject your opinion. You draw your conclusions based on what they give you. That turned out to be very valuable because while they fanned out and interviewed all these Africans who have been enslaved and it was an overwhelmingly white force, Charles Johnson ended up at Fisk and Charles Johnson was at Fisk, and one of his assistants was Ophelia Settle. Ophelia Settle is black. And she's going on, not only she went on to be uh, uh, you know, a social worker, uh, she did this research. Um, she then came to Washington, DC. Uh, she was on the faculty at Howard University for a number of years. Uh, in fact, in 1956, Planned Parenthood hired her to bring family planning into her community. And she did that, the first Planned Parenthood clinic, and, you know, as we wait for Roe versus Wade to be overturned by the handmaid and the rest of her friends on the Supreme Court, is named for Ophelia Egypt Settle. She was the director, in fact, for the first privately uh, uh, run family planning clinic in Southeast D.C. Very important sister. But this is what I'm about to tell you now happened before all of that in her distinguished career. Ophelia Settle, Egypt. She and Charles Johnson working on this project with other folk, but it was Ophelia Settle who interviewed those Africans and they published, this is a rare document. In fact, both of the editions are rare. The one we showed, if you go to narrative, the little, the little thin volume, Unwritten History of Slavery, that's the volume of the interviews, but this is the original. This is the Social Science Source Documents, Volume 1, The Unwritten History of Slavery, Autobiographical Accounts of Negro Ex-Slaves, Social Science Institute, Fisk University, 1945. You see how thick that is? This is Ophelia Settle Egypt talking to Africans. And we talked about that. So y'all can go to narrative for that extensive conversation in the bibliography that goes with it. But you can't go to narrative for this. Professor Hunter, let me get this phone here. So people are saying, damn, that was her voice? Oh, go back and play it again. Sorry. This was what she did in this album. This is how she conceived the album she didn't live to hear. Mm. She says, um, after retirement, Miss Egypt 
devoted her time to serving her community. She worked with children in schools, in libraries, wrote books for children. She wrote a book on James Weldon John's little children's book. And I've got it around here somewhere, but I said, let me not look for that right now. <laughs> let me go right into this because, you know, we can add that on the narrative side and we've mentioned it. So of course the wizards, you know, over there at, on the, on the narrative side, those of you in narrative know what I'm talking about. Led by the great Uraeus will put that for you. In 1929, while she was a research instructor at Fisk, Miss Egypt felt the stirrings of an idea that wouldn't go away. She kept running across old people who wanted to talk about life before the Civil War, who wanted to talk about life before the Civil War. See, when you read the scholarship, because what happens is those WPA narratives become the source for books that academics are writing now. And they love to say things like undiscovered, previously unknown. Y'all stop talking from the social structure or I'm sorry. No, continue to talk from the social structure. And as you talk, this is previously unknown. And as you look at it, and then we go and find what our people said. Because some, some of them same old people said, oh, I'll talk to you. Come here, girl. And she said it started when she was a little girl. But anyway, we'll get to that in a second. She you know what she said. She said when she after she had retired, she's working in school. She's writing children's books. She knew James Weldon Johnson. Remember, James Weldon Johnson was on the faculty at Fisk. Um, in 1983, Miss Egypt conceived the idea of combining excerpts from the interviews with songs sung during slavery because she believed the songs and interviews would help reinforce each other and give more depth and understanding to the slaves' experiences. Now, Robert Park may not have believed that Africa survived, but the way he trained his students, including Charles Johnson, and then who passed that along to Ophelia Settle Egypt is you listen to the people and guess where Africa survived? It didn't survive in the Negroes who are looking every way to scrub the blackness out of their voice. It survived in the people who clean up John Harvard's plantation university, who clean up at Brown, who uh, work and cut the grass at the University of South Carolina and Stanford. In other words, it survived in the vast majority of African people. And Miss Settle had a direct pipeline to them. But I've said enough. Let's let her tell us how it worked. The next voice you will hear just for a minute is Ophelia Settle Egypt talking about for two and a half minutes. I hope we can hear this. How she conceived this project. This is the first track on the album. Then you hear many thousands gone. Most of you children know something about slavery, but have you ever thought about what it would be like for a child to be a slave? First, we must remember that that child, or a parent, had been kidnapped by slave traders from a happy family life in Africa, chained together with others who'd been stolen, and then marched to the sea. There they were packed like sardines in the bottom of the ship for a long journey to a strange land. Some committed suicide by jumping into the sea. Many others died. Those who survived were sold to the highest bidder to be slaves for the rest of their lives. They became the property of their owners, called master or mistress. They had to work long hours without pay. They could be sold like cattle, children from parents, fathers from mothers, wives from husbands, and they might never see each other again. I learned about slavery as a child because my grandparents had been slaves. Sitting around the fireplace on a cold winter evening, 
they've often told us about their experiences during slavery. So many years ago, 1929, when in connection with the research project, I discovered a number of aged men and women who had been slaves, I jumped at the opportunity to talk with them. For three years, the stenographer and I traced down more than 100 former slaves and recorded their words. This record brings to light some of the experiences they shared and some of the songs they sang as they struggled to maintain a secret life of their own. They proved to themselves that although a master could own their bodies, he could not own their minds. Listen to one little girl's experience. I was raised right here in Tennessee. Could you hear it, Prof? Yeah, they could not control our minds. That's right. You know, every week we convene here uh, to knock the crust and the dust and the the cement that uh, was attempted to, you know, um, prevent us from knowing. That's right. And I'm inter- eternally grateful for the opportunity. I can no longer listen to anyone speak nonsense or things that I know are not true. It it is like uh, nails on a chalkboard and we can never go back once we know, which is why it's important that people in this space share, uh, share with as many people as you can, because that is the key here. The knowledge of self, the knowledge of who we are. That's right. So, so tell us a minute um, in, in just digesting uh, Ophelia Settle, Egypt and her voice and the power of what she was doing and collecting the memories and reminding us who we are and through those words of people who were in bondage. This critical race theory, what is it? Well, why, you know, I, I liken it to, you know, folks, you know, again, 400 years, we were indoctrinated into a mythology and into an ideology and into a, a set of lies for four months, you know, for four weeks, for four hours, they are so resistant to telling the truth. Well, they have, they have no choice. Yeah, but, they have but no look, choice. At, look at the length. So you called it a cold civil war. It's a cold I, civil I, war. I always said the civil war was never won. No. We're battles. They never won They actually won the civil war. Yeah, but they, they didn't stop fighting it. So can you win a war if the other side didn't stop fighting? Was it Chris Hedges or was it uh, Gore Vidal who wrote the little book Perpetual War? Yeah, uh, Chris Hedges wrote the book War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. Meaning in Western society, if it's not conflict, you're not alive. Look at the even the notion of sports. I mean, you read the book like Brown Girl in the Ring, other black folk and not just black folk, many different cultures create games at the anchor of their games are cooperation or rhythm, whether you jump and roll, where you ring around and roll, these kind of thing. In the West, the game's about smashing somebody in the face. Red Rover, Red Rover. Let me tear your arms out your sockets if I could just ruck you again. Let me punch you in the boxing and shit. Like, where does this come from? Conflict. Conflict. A culture of conflict. A culture of, you know, so even in Africa, they had wrestling. They did stick fighting. But if you look at a lot of the martial arts, it's not about beating somebody up. It's about timing. It's almost like a dance, even when you see Capoeira as it, as it talks about that. And um, so, but, but at any rate, um, so conflict is at the heart. That was Chris Hedges who wrote that book. Gore Vidal's book was a, a book that uh, Perpetual War, a little book of essays, the title of which was Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace. 
So this is this. So there's a conflict element at the center of Western societies. It's why we're having this conversation in English, because settler colonialism is driven by conflict. It's also driven by scarcity. We get into that another time. But in terms of that's why they that's one of the reasons animating this idea of perpetual conflict. Another one, though, however, is is quite simply whiteness. Whiteness as a weaponized identity, meaning an identity that is so dearly held, that is so essential to the notion of who uh, people are and how they imagine themselves in the world, not just as individuals, but as members of groups. And we talk about entitlement. Entitlement is a cute kind of, in times almost like a pair of earrings or a bracelet. It's a nice accessory to the deep structural um, uh, exertion of power based on race. So critical race theory is an attempt, and we talk, as we said, as we know, we go over the narrative extensively with uh, footnotes and citations, and we're going to bring some of those people back today just for a second to frame this. It's an attempt to exert uh, self-determining authority in the social structure. Critical race theory has nothing to do with the governance structure. And I keep bringing it back to our categories, our conceptual categories in Africana studies, because people have said, somebody said on social media, some people might call what we do critical race theory. It is absolutely not critical race theory. This is not critical race theory. We're not trying to convince anyone of our humanity by telling stories, by posing counter narratives, by looking at the complexity of intersectional uh, identities, thereby drawing upon the very demographic notion of slicing and dicing identity to reforge it that comes directly out of the West. Shout out to Michelle Foucault and Jacques Derrida and all the rest of the people that got our minds so turned around that we think we can somehow say race, sex, class, and that's supposed to mean something. But so, But we're not caught up in that web. That doesn't mean we don't understand it. That don't mean we don't teach it. I mean, you know, in the class I teach at Howard Law, we definitely engage it. But we have a class at Howard uh, in t on critical race theory. And it's a great class. A lot of people, you know, get a lot out of it. But I don't teach critical. No, I'm not trying to convince anyone of my humanity. I'm in the governance structure. I'm thinking about Africana ways of knowing. I'm looking at the ways that we uh, interact with our material conditions, science and technology. I'm thinking, how do we capture memory and pass that on from generation to generation to generation, movement and memory? And I'm thinking about in any particular moment, how do we mark that moment in time and space with art, with music, with with, with the word, uh, cultural meaning making? Um, now, when I have to engage the social structure because I live in it, and by the social structure now, I mean the society we live in generally. I definitely want to do that on the best terms. So I'm very well familiar with critical race theory, but that's what critical race theory really is. It's an attempt uh, which is why I kind of cringe sometimes when people say, you know, I feel seen. <laughs> can you see? Yeah. Then can, can somebody else see you? Yeah. Then you're seen. You Why don't you feel seen? Oh, you're trying to convince somebody you're a human being. Which is why, you know, the Zulu, one of the greetings they have, uh, my, my dear friend and brother, the great sage, the great elder, the great Jagna, Jeremiah Wright, often uses this, uh, Dr. Wright, Reverend Dr. Wright uses this example when he talks about that greeting in Zulu that translates into, I see you. And the irony is, you know, Robert Park, you may not think Africa survived, but when you see a graduation, when those two sisters walked across the stage, guess what those black children did who were watching them? I see you. <laughs> I see you. Part of feeling seen is people declaring your humanity by seeing you. Somebody come up with some new shoes. I see you, son. I see you. I see you. It's all about relational dynamics. For human beings in general and African people are no different. That's why, in, you know, in Philly and Northeast, you know, people say, you know, Philly, you know, one of, one of the great uh, 
exertions of relational dynamic among children is when two young people of relatively same age, one will say to the other, I sunned you. <laughs> I made you my son. <laughs> what does that mean? That means that I have reduced your rank. Now you're still human. In fact, we have an intimate relationship. You're my son on this issue, meaning <laughs> you are my apprentice. You are my blood relation, which means I love you, but I'm the authority. I mean, it's all about relational dynamic, but critical race theory is an attempt to exert a self that is seen. And it's important to do that in a society where you can't escape being dehumanized. And that's where uh, uh, Ms. Egypt, Professor Egypt, Professor Johnson and their crew become very important. Let's just let's just think about that as a point of entry because we, we're in this thing now. Um, think about Ophelia Egypt. I want you to think about what we just heard. And again, that's just two minutes. And the album isn't that long, but I mean, the way she framed it gives us everything we need. She, she, she's talking to people. First thing she does is establish a relationship with the listener. She says, did you ever think about what it would be like to be a slave as a child? So now anybody listening now, immediately the black people are like, no, nah, but damn. And white people are like, no, nah, but hmm, I can't really get my head around. Right. <laughs> because the whole society doesn't make that a point of entry for you. It's inconceivable. Then she says, you know, I jumped at the chance because I started learning as a child. My grandparents would say, whoa, now people are reflecting on the elders in their family. She's easing you into it. All those people who did those WPA interviews, they ain't got no black grandparents or great grandparents or great great grandparents who were in enslavement. So they're asking questions that are about them. When you read the WPA narratives, read the George Volwick's, uh, Rawick's multi-volume American Slave, which is transcripts. You go to the Library of Congress, you can go digitally and read them. You can read them. If you're, if you're reading them with a governance structure lens and a ways of knowing lens, the complexity of Black life and its great diversity within Blackness, you are reading the transcripts and translating in your head. Yeah, once you know the interviewer is white, you realize, hmm, because then there are people who use those transcripts to say, yeah, well, you know, slavery wasn't so bad. I mean, the people who were there said that they didn't say, yeah, that's just like that insurance man that you want to get off your damn porch. So you say whatever you need to do to get the transaction done, get the hell off my porch. I'm not talking. Or in SNCC, listen to uh, Bob Moses and them, or, you know, listen to uh, to Dory Ladner, or listen to the folks who were not going door, door to door, you know, knocking. Would you like to register the vote? Yes, I would. Yes, sir. Will you come down to the courthouse? Yes, sir. Okay, will you come to the meeting? Yes, sir. Now they coming? Who knows? But what they trying to do is get you off the porch <laughs> before the person who owns his land see these kids with these overalls coming. But slowly they had to win their way. Which is why Bob Moses opens uh, his book, uh, Radical Equations. We had our free school students read it one time, and uh, and then Dave Dennis came and talked to them. His his man Dave Dennis, who was the co-author, and then a couple of years later, Bob himself came to talk to our freedom school students because, you know, he's helping them understand. He said, you don't come into a community as a community organizer with, we're going to organize y'all about, uh, first thing you might do is just stand on the corner there and watch these children play and they bouncing a the ball. Then at some point, the ball rolls over to you. You throw the ball back and watch again. Then when the ball roll over there next to the porch where their parents are, you walk with them to the porch and that's how you meet the parent. You don't come in guns blazing. We need to organize, sign this clipboard. No, you got to have a point of entry. Ophelia Settle's point of entry, Egypt Settle's point of entry as a little girl was, I'm listening to the elders and they didn't have any reticence. 
Because you'll read a lot of scholarship would say, you know, these black people didn't want to talk about slavery. They told people, no, you don't worry about what I suffered. You go ahead. And that's absolutely true. We've all experienced it. But it's also true that many of them did, as she just said. So when she got a chance as a trained social scientist to go do some research with these people, she's, you know how to sit with an elder. Now, we've probably all been in situations where people who don't, aren't, don't know how to talk to black elders, and that includes some black people these days, unfortunately will come in and start talking or stand up over an elder. <laughs> elder sitting in the chair. Hey, Sadie, did you just call her by her first name? Wow. I mean, I've seen it happen a million times. And depending on who it is, I don't correct them. Why? Because you came in there with a motive. This wasn't just ignorance. This was arrogance. So we're going to, and we're going to tie that to critical race theory in a second. So, but listen again to just in those two minutes, those of you who had to replay it, replay it. She says, uh, they were taken from their homes. Don't forget, they were taken from their homes where they were happy. Now, what she has done, and I'm gonna draw now on my old old background as in drama. Some of the earliest dramas in human history, in human memory, you got you got the Asar drama, the so-called Asarian drama. I say so-called because they wouldn't have used the word drama. Uh, what you might call the Isis and Osiris drama, which uh, comes out of classical Africa, ancient Egypt, the Nile Valley. And if y'all remember the story, uh, you've got the formation of everything of reality of the the expression of what we can observe in reality. Reality has always been here, and then you have these these pairs. Uh, well, there's more than that, but I'm just going to shrink it down to to two sets of husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sisters and brothers, wives and husbands. Isis and Osiris, the Greek names, the Sar and the Set, and their brother and sister, who are also brother and sister and husband and wife. All the expressions of relationship are there. Uh, het, um, 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 Neptus or Nebet and Setek or Set. So I'll use the Greek names right quick. Isis and Osiris, husband and wife, and Set and Neptus, husband and wife. The two brothers fight because Osar or Osiris is the lord of the Westerners. Why? Because his brother kills him. And then he goes into the West. Stories into the Cain Nabal story. Story for another day. I think we talked about it that one of the Christianity conversations we had last year. The two sisters and cons I don't even say the word conspire. They get together with the other forces, Jehudi and everything else, to figure out a way for Offset, Isis, to become pregnant, which she does, uh, unbeknownst to Setek, because what Setek and Osar, what Osiris and Set are fighting over is who is going to be in charge of governing the society. And I'm doing this because it's the Nile, the Nile River, the Nile Valley. So with uh, Osar out of the way, Setek is the ruler of everything on top of the earth. So now, but his brother now is with the ancestors. So that's why they call him Kim Ware, the great black. Osir is the one, Osiris is the one who's over the Westerners. Anytime you pass a cemetery, see them little uh, model obelisks that we call headstones. Understand, we call them the Westerners. They have gone to the West. The Lord of the Westerners is Osar, is Osiris. He over there and he ain't coming back. But you got to get pregnant. So what you going to do? They figure out a way to spiritually impregnate her. Go to Abitus. Remember, I told you about Abitus last week. That's the you see the whole thing on the wall. You know, that's the temple Seti Seti the first and Ramses the second put together. It's just a brilliant thing because on one place you see him on his back masturbating, and the seed is going to be used. But over him, it, on one side is his wife or Isis. On at his feet is his son Heru because that's the one that's going to cut. I mean, it's frozen in stone. You ain't got no television. You can't tell the story sequentially. So the, the, the thing chiseled into this white limestone is the story. And then another montage 
looks the exact same, except in this case, you see a, a, a little bird hovering over the region, his nether region, his penis region. The bird's going to spiritually impregnate her with the child. This is the origin of what they call the immaculate conception. See, people confuse immaculate conception and virgin birth. Those two different things. Now, what does this got to do with critical race theory? And make it a stork. Right. Stork. Oh, no. Ooh. You know what's interesting? In the stork family is the Ibis, the Ibis family. We see the flamingos in Florida. But when you go to the Nile Valley, you see their grandparents, those white birds that stand up in the Nile. That is the bird that the Egyptians, observing how that bird did things, hunted, in the, in the water to get fish to eat, put its beak down in the water and then turned around and figured out at an angle how to give itself an enema to keep itself regular. They used that bird as one of their symbols of intelligence. The other major one was the baboon. They watched, they observed the baboons. But that symbol of the ibis, when you put it on the head of a human, that became the symbol of, I'm going to go to my desk for a minute. <laughs> because I keep many of them around here. Oh my goodness. I picked it. The reason I'm picking this one up is because it's small. I got a big one in the other room. You just happen to have that? Oh, <laughs> well, no. Yeah, no question. Because, I mean, it's a symbol next to my look button. I, the rest of the I, I didn't know I was going to say story. Yeah, next to my baby, I got a, I got a big uh, one of these over there. This is the scribe. You know, you got to have the writer with you all the time. And I got a big one over there on that other desk. But that's a whole nother story. This is. Yeah, that's Jehudi. See the beak? Jehudi got the the sun disc on his head. I picked this one up, actually, of all places, in Paris at the Louvre because they have a lot of our stuff they stole. So they sell these to the children. So after I'd gone through their criminal enterprise looking at everything they'd stolen, because that's what museum means. It translates as the stuff we stole. But at any rate, uh, <laughs> you know, I went to the... Pause on that for one, just one second, because we go to museums and... I've never connected all of the stuff that we see. Yeah. Is things that were stolen from yeah. our continent. No question. And fed back to us. No question. In fact, this book just came out. Uh, I can reach over here. I think this is the one. Yeah, there are a couple that came out. One's called The Brutish Museums. I showed y'all this, but this came out a couple of weeks ago. Barney Phillips just wrote a book called Loot. <laughs> Britain and the Benin bronzes. It's very interesting. Oh, by the way, they just made negotiated to yes. get, get it back. Nigeria, they just sent back two of them to Nigeria. Yeah, Nigeria's not playing. Guess what? Y'all better start, because guess what? I was reading some stuff. I think I mentioned it last week, demographic uh, predictions. By the end of this century, there are going to be more people in Nigeria than there are in China. So at some point, they're just going to come get it. But at any rate, <laughs> and that's why this book, is, uh, I've been talking about the scramble for Europe is so important. Because uh, Europe is getting browner. And at some point, in fact, what does he say here? He says, uh, uh, in this book, Stephen Smith focuses on young Africa. 40% of its population are under 15 years old. It's a billion three there now. And a dramatic demographic shift. Today, 510 million people live inside the EU borders. And 1.25 billion are in Africa. More like 1.3. In 2050, what is this, 2022? So 20, uh, 2021, 29 years from now. They're predicting, which they always under predicts. So it's going to happen faster, probably. 450 million Europeans will face 2.5 billion Africans. <laughs> it's anyway. So, yeah, at some point we get in our stuff. And we, 
Say and, less, Dr. Carr. Say less. Say less. Say less. Yeah, because it ain't going to be like Michael B. Jordan and Black Panther, although that was great. And it threw Marvel for a loop when Black people started cheering for Killmonger because y'all still don't know who we are, which is going to tie the critical race theory in a sense. I'm going to tie all this together. So anyway, that's Jehudi. Jehudi helped a set carry the baby by hiding her from set, but he had to hide her in time. So he's playing a game with set. I'll resist going to get the other because I got all the little statues over there. Um, because I mean they all came from the Louvre and they were cheap, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm taking this back. But at any rate, the story of how he plays this game with set, and every time Jehudi wins, he steals a little bit of time. That's how the Egyptians told the story, how they came up with their calendar. So they, all these are allegories for Kelly, because they didn't believe these people were alive. Or even they weren't or people. They were using this as allegory. But anyway, I set out to say this. That uh, is act two. That's why I'm going with Ophelia Settle Egypt. Is again, I'm going to go to the drama. We call it the Asarian drama because act one, if we did it in like three acts, act one would be origins of creation. The four of them are getting together. Well, they're looking at the world and they're near the act, end of act one set start acting real crazy right real new then he starts a beef then he kills his brother then act two act two is them figuring out a set nebet jehudi the greeks call him toth and then split him up because uh the greeks call him toth and then the romans get a hurl and turn him into a human being stick some feathers on the side of a helmet and call him mercury Y'all think about that when y'all watching Justice League with the Flash, because the original Flash had, was based on Mercury, who's Roman, and the Roman god is based on the Greco Greek god, which goes back to the Egyptian. That's Jehudi, the FTD florist. That's Jehudi. But at any rate, you know, they always diminishing something, which is cool. Everybody get to do what they do. It's just not as rich. But at any rate, Act Two would be them figuring out how to get this boy into existence. She gives birth, and so the near near the end of Act Two, he's born. Act Three. Is the battle of Horus and Set because now the son is here. I got to avenge my father, so he fights his uncle. He doesn't kill his uncle. Why? It's his uncle. See, this is the difference between conflict in many Africana cultures and, and conflict in Europe. A war in Europe, let's kill everybody and then we'll sort it out at the end. War in Africa, even Chinawachebe and things fall apart. A great war, we lost twelve people. Why? You don't. Everybody don't fight everybody. Get your best fighters. We get our best fighters, and we, you know, we settle it out there. I mean, now that doesn't stay that way. Certainly, by the time enslavement encroaches, and you see certainly the Muslim slave trade, the trade in Africans from the Muslims, you see raids. You see, by so by the time you get to the nineteenth century, the eighteenth nineteenth century, you see start seeing the the wars, the houses, the Fulani's. You see certainly the Yoruba expansion. All that stuff now isn't the same as it was even in Africa before. But anyway, let me get too, too too far afield on that. Here we go. Here we go. At one, the way things should be in the world. And then near the end of Act One, the beef, the killing. Act Two, the struggle to uh, to restore. You know, figure this out. Act Three, the battle. And what ends up at the end of the battle? He subdues his uncle, and so now he reunites the Nile Valley. The uncle has been subdued, but he still has some authority. And then, at, and then at the end of Act Three, after that final confrontation, you have the denouement. You have the denouement, as they would say in in French, or they say in in European drama. You have basically the after story, the epilogue. Now, why do I go through that? What does it got to do with the free settle Egypt? And how does it have all tied to critical race theory? If you go to any school now, including all the HBCUs who teach drama, they probably won't start with the Asarian 
they're going to come fast forward th thousands of years to the Greeks. And they're going to attribute what I just told y'all, that so-called three-act structure to Aristotle. They probably mentioned poetics and some stuff like that. And they say, act one is the exposition. It's the world the story is in. It shows you all the, okay, what does Ophelia settle Egypt do? These people were taken from their families, from their husbands and wives, their children. She articulates in a sentence the governance structure. That's act one. That is all of human history up until yesterday. And near the end of act one, some boats show up. Act two. Act two in, in drama, if you go to school for this, high school, whatever, they're going to call that like rising action ending in the crisis. So that would be everything that's happened to us over those last four, 400 plus years. The Western Hemisphere experience, the global north, which is some people call Western civilization, settler colonialism, and the process of resistance. The process of resistance. So we're rising, we're rising. In the United States, oh, I have a dream. And then the black arts movement, it gets black. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. We're rising, we're rising, we're rising, we're rising. And now we are in Act Three. Act Three, usually, whether it's August Wilson, Shakespeare, like five act plays, but that's a whole nother story because the rhythm is the same. And remember now, these acts aren't of equal time. Act One and Ophelia, the way Ophelia settled Egypt, articulated that, that would be. All of time until yesterday, these last 400 years, it's not a lot of time. Act two and three going to take place now. Act three, this is where this critical race theory comes in. The, the drama uh, teachers who would anchor this would say, act three is where you have the leading up to the climatic confrontation. So in the Asarian drama, it's the battle of horse and set. In Western society, it's the imploding demographics and the increasing desperation. They over there now, the G7, and then kick Putin out, but he's still hanging around. They got the Chinese because they can't knock the Chinese out, and they're trying to narrate why they worried about everything. Joe Biden, you want him to be FDR? He can't because Joe Manchin got his uh, whole manhood in his hand, and Kristen Cinema is behind him with a stick. So what is he doing? He's overseas trying to get them to raise the floor on the global corporate tax. I, you know, the, the, the iron, I don't get a little shaky. Germany is kind of said they'll go along. Why? Because I can't get this tax revenue at home. But this is this is because the United States isn't a country that exists outside of the global north. They form it like Voltron because they family. Critical race theory is an attempt to talk to the United States as if the United States exists in a vacuum. The best critical race theory acknowledges and in fact articulates that it doesn't and it scares the hell out of the enemies of critical race theory because the enemies of critical race theory have an identity that is absolutely only anchored here. I don't know why he's over talking to Boris Johnson. Talking to Boris Johnson. Damn it. Over there with Angela Merkel. Look at and then Macron. Look at him. He oh we feet French man. That's the hillbillies and the hillbilly mentality. But Unfortunately, some of the people believe that that's true. But those people in Congress, like young Josh Hawley and Tom Landa, no chin, Cotton, Gilligan Cotton, Senator Gilligan from uh, from 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 Arkansas, Arkansas, they all know that's cosplay. They all know that the global north is in bed together. They all know that there are no boundaries when it comes to capital. Just like COVID didn't know any boundaries in terms of the virus, don't know who it's attacking. 
Capital doesn't know any boundaries. Transnational corporations. That's why Biden can be overseas talking about raising a global uh, corporate tax, which can then rob these people who ain't paid no taxes in the United States. Shout out to Bezos. Shout out to George Soros. Shout out to Warren Buffett. All them people that you want to be like. And then you get so twisted around in your head that you get two nickels to rub together and you give a penny back to the, uh, Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots. Shout out to Jay-Z and Meek Mill for buying him a Bentley. Y'all so twisted up now. Y'all make videos about being rich and then get some of your money to a man who make your money look like lunch money. But at any rate, what Cotton and Cauley and the rest of them and Biden and the rest of them understand is that capital doesn't know country boundaries. It flows wherever it's going to meet least resistance. And if you can get a global corporate tax, you rob them of their places to hide. And then finally, Guess what else overflows country boundaries? Identities. I know some of y'all probably watched, uh, what's my man, Linwell, Manuel? This is the reason he came to prominence. In the Heights, I guess. I tried. I watched it. I gritted myself. I waited till I, you know. So brave. No, no, no. Those are my, those are my usually like 2.30 to 4.30 a.m. watches. Because <laughs> I got to watch them at a moment when, like, I'm in a bed now, so let me just watch. I'm kind of hostage. <laughs> so, but I wanted to watch it because as far as I'm concerned, if you got to pick between In the Heights and Hamilton, it's not a choice. One is a brown face minstrel show. Hamilton is 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 indefensible and it's irredeemable. In the Heights was very interesting, uh, you know, because the arc of In the Heights locates the fact that the identity of those who speak Spanish from what they call Latin America, as if Rome is in the Western Hemisphere, <laughs> no, you speak Spanish. Okay. In fact, them people in Spain say you don't speak Spanish. Juan Carlos and them is like, what you talking is not Spanish. This is the king's Spanish. Man. So they don't even claim you, but you're over here in the Dominican Republic. You're over here in Puerto Rico. You're over here in Central America. You're over here in uh, South America, as they, we use these labels, right? But you're also in Haiti. You're also in Jamaica and Barbados. So when you look at Washington Heights, and you go up, go up the island of Manhattan and get to Washington Heights, you're seeing the car crash of the legacy of settler colonialism in the Caribbean, Central and uh, South America in New York, Nueva York, right? Washington Heights. He's telling the story, right? It's beautiful. But the thing is that that car crash, which means, and, and in fact, there's a line in the movie where she says, you know, they, they complain because it's a blackout and it's hot. Everybody's hot. And the girl says, our people survived the slave ships. And he's like, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's good. That's good. She said, are the people survive? The Taino, we survive. Mm-hmm. Are the people survive the conquistadores? Mm-hmm. And now you Latin and scared of some heat? <laughs> and then everybody's, yeah, and they start dancing, right? I said, okay, I'll go along with the minstrel dance and the kind of form link dance. Well, yeah, I know, because the guy who directed it directed Crazy Rich Asians, which in many ways is a minstrel show for Europeans coming out of the so-called Asian experience, which is why you give it awards, right? Um, so, but but anyway, in the social structure. But I'm saying I have to say this, that's the people, but in the heights, concentrates on the fact the, the message is you don't have to go back to the Dominican Republic. You can stay in New York and be who you are. What does that reinforce? It reinforces the idea and the critique will leave aside. Let's not talk about the fact that anyway, we won't do that. We'll do the value. The, the, the message is identities overflow boundaries too. critical race theory. The response to critical race theory. We didn't talk about critical race theory for this. 
the reaction to critical race theory is a reaction to the idea that who we are as African people is not limited to that little flag that we wave for you can leave us alone. You know, I know y'all think people wave it because they're patriots. In fact, y'all know better because governance structure knows it's much more complicated than that. And so the reaction, however, has nothing to do with knowing what critical race theory is. It has nothing to do with trying to explain it. In other words, hold on, you're misunderstanding what we mean. It, they, don't, they don't care what you mean. This is about keeping you on the plantation. And just like they interviewed those WPA people and those white people did it, and black people, some black people were more candid than others. Many black people didn't say it the way they would have sold it to a black person. When Ophelia Settle shows up and says, talk to me, you're going to read those narratives and you'll pick up many times a different emphasis, a different fact, a different memory there because they're talking to a black woman. And when she finally on that record, she starts at one in Africa. Act two is, again, the idea of this this struggle, this 400 year struggle. And then act three, that's where we're in in the United States right now. We're leading up to the climactic confrontation, except she does it in two minutes at the beginning of an album. And that framing is the framing that the 1619 Project doesn't even touch. The 1619 Project starts at one in the United States, even the cover of the magazine. You see the water. Ophelia, Egypt would be like, didn't you hear the first sentence? You took them from their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, their brothers. All I'm looking at is water. Our identity starts out of the water. We came out the water. What are we, like fish? I mean, is this like a anthropology? I mean, we walked out of the water. And then she reinforces it. Ophelia Settle does, Egypt. She reinforces it later when she says two places. And you name one of them, the last one. She, she says, you know, they were husbands and wives. They were sisters and brothers. She never lets them lose their humanity. And then she ends it, as you observe, with they heard that song. And the master, the owner, thought, you know, they had lost hope. That's she, what she did there. She said social structure. And then she said governance. And she said, no, sometimes they just sing it. Because, you know, to ease the burden. In other words, that's the governance structure. So when you hear those songs, some people say, I don't want to hear them slave songs. I don't want to hear them slam. You better listen. Because when you play that song, Professor Hunter, no more auction block for me. No more. No more. No more auction block for me. Many thousands gone. That's not. That's a recognition. You beat the shit out of me. But you didn't touch me. You put your children up to be the co-valedictorian and the co-salutatorian. You didn't touch me. Because when we leave here and I'll do electric slide in the backyard in Mississippi and all the folk come over, we going to make these children. You know what the children going to do? No, let me not. Let me not even speculate. Let me tell you what happened to me. Okay. Myself, Dr. Mario Beatty, Dr. Belithia Watkins defended our dissertations at the same time at Temple University. We had our dissertation defenses. Our whole committees were there. For me, Jacob Carruthers, uh, Marimba Ani, Nate Norman, uh, Ella Forbes, Theophilo Benga. And for Dr. Beatty and Dr. Watkins, combinations of those groups were all there. There were the auditorium we defended in. Usually when you have dissertation defense, your family might come. Your dissertation committee would be there. Maybe some other faculty member, a couple of your friends, classmates. So it might be you know, at most, maybe 20 people, maybe, you know, if it's a big one, maybe like 30 people. It's over 300 people at our dissertation defenses. 
because we part of a community. In fact, so many people came that the provost at Temple University took the afternoon off to come over. I looked up because I went last. I looked up. Well, I'm getting ready to go up there and do my press. But the provost is here. This white man ain't never seen nothing like that. And as I reminded everybody that day, I said, look, my 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 brother, my brother-in-law at the time, my sister was living in Pittsburgh. My brother-in-law was playing for the Steelers. He brought his best buddy from the Steelers over to come. Cordell Stewart. Remember Cordell? He's quarterback for in fact, Dr. Carruthers was like, yeah, I'm going to give you this dissertation, but I'm trying to get tickets to the Steelers game. I mean, <laughs> some people know him as Portia's uh, first husband. Yes, yes, some people do, which means yeah, you know. no memory. In fact, <laughs> you know, my mama don't even follow football like that. But when Pittsburgh did to Cordell Stewart what they did to a man who's near and dear to my heart, who I knew not well, but knew very well enough, um, whose father was my brother-in-law, Randy Fuller's godfather, the great Joe Gillum, one of the great football minds of all time. Joe Gillum's son, Joe Gillum Jr., was the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, what am I telling you? You know this. You've written about this, I'm sure. You know, I knew Joe Gillum, of course, senior and junior. But, of course, Pittsburgh ruined Joe Gillum Jr. because they because they had old weak arm quarterback out of Louisiana named Terry Bradshaw. They wanted to be the man. Cordell Stewart, if Cordell throw interception of it, one time they showed something uh, on TV. My mom was watching the game and they showed a doll of Cordell Stewart and one of them hillbillies had a noose around his neck. My mom was like, oh my God. In other words, don't get it twisted. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We love you until, you know, ask Kyrie and them about that. But at any rate, I still have to say, there were all in the dissertation defense. At the end of the defense, the committee deliberates. The committee deliberates. Usually everybody has to leave and then they come back in and tell you whether you pass or not. It was so many people there. The committee had to leave because <laughs> everybody couldn't leave while they deliberate. They came back and said, OK, y'all pass. Everybody cheered. Then it got real quiet in Zingarada Bishaheru. Then the president of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations had flown from Los Angeles. And she was accompanied by Dr. Annette Blake, Yasanti Blake, who was a principal at the time, one of the schools out here in Maryland. Uh, my dear, these are like my co-mothers when riding with them fair. And they brought all the ASCAC people. They came bearing three certificates. And Zynga stood up and said, I'm glad y'all got y'all's PhDs. It's good to see all y'all here, all the administrators, all the friends and family, the community. Now this is community business. And you will get your certificate saying PhD. You'll frame it, put it in your wall. But on behalf of the children of ASCAC, there were uh, two sisters, Jamie and Debbie Thomas. Uh, they were children at the time out of Los Angeles, uh, Billy and James Thomas, their parents, good ass cack folk. In fact, this is how long ago that was. That was 1998. Uh, one of the Thomas sisters, Debbie, is a neurosurgeon. And the other, uh, Jamie, is on the faculty. She was at, uh, at Swarthmore, uh, linguist and anthropology. That's how long ago that's been, right? We went to Kemet together the first time, 1996. Uh, I was teaching them glyphs, in fact, in the Nile Valley. But at any rate, those children had made up certificates saying, congratulations, you are now PhD. So while the university, okay, y'all passed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had come with the real certification <laughs> and they granted us these community recognition degrees and everybody cheered. And then after I told the provost, I said, see, that's how black people do it. That's what we call the governance structure. So in Mississippi, while they covering this around the world and y'all sitting at the high school graduation and you got rocks in your jaws a little bit as you should because they don't put these white people up next to you. That's all right. Now at the church or the community center or the backyard, Mississippi, y'all know, y'all don't notice. Make up some certificates. Let them girls know 
who values because this ain't no Pulitzer. You know what I'm saying? You giving a Pulitzer recognition to a child who's trying to videotape this because she can't go over there and blow the cop's brains out. So all she can do is this. You know, Pulitzer ain't giving no award to recognize her. Pulitzer's giving an award to remain relevant to itself. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Okay. Why don't you keep your war and stop killing black people? Why don't you do that? You know what I'm saying? Pulitzer. Anyway, but the point is this now. <laughs> so when you see the reaction to critical race theory, it's an attempt to dial us back because everything's changing. And whiteness is no longer in control. We're in act three now. We're coming to the final confrontation. And now let's talk about, well, let me mention one other thing. Uh, 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 I thought I had one over here. I guess I don't. I thought I had picked it up. You know how I am. I'll look, up, I'll look around for it and find it as I just did. <laughs> this is an interesting book. Colin Woodward wrote a book called Union. The struggle to force the story of United States nationhood. Y'all remember that. I'm going to come back to that in a second. I'm put it right there where I can see it. Because we're in Act 3 now. We're in Act 3. And Act 3 is the Cold Civil War. And I call it the Cold Civil War because Act 1 in this formation was settler colonialism. In other words, no, no, no. Pause. The beginning of Act 1, maybe Act 1, Scene 1, if you want to think about it that way. Remember, we're going to do a three-act play called The Rise and Fall of the West. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what I'm It's very simple. Let's keep it destroyed. That's why I laid out the structure, right? Act 1, for a feel you settle, we were in Africa. That's the beginning of humanity to yesterday. Act 1 in this Rise and Fall of the West is when they're getting together the logics of white nationalism. None of the logics of white nationalism have their origin in the Western Hemisphere, the global North. They have their origin in Western Eurasia, what we call Europe. After centuries of the Africans and the Arabs, the Muslims being in the Iberian Peninsula, they finally push them out. They've weaponized Christianity against the Muslims, whether it be England, whether it be Germany, whether they're coming up with an idea that haunts us to this day. It's not a good or bad idea because everybody has their own culture, but it's an idea that has been used for some terrible purposes in quote unquote modern history. Even the concept of modern history, medieval history, ancient history, all of them trace back to this period around the maybe usefully, let's say 11th, 12th century, 13th century. That's where you see the origins of the legal system, the emergence of what becomes the corporation in terms of this notion of how you conduct commerce, uh, the origins of the university system in terms of what we think about in terms of education and the origins of what we might call constitutional democracy, holds separation. So around the beginning of the 13th century, you're talking about Magna Carta, right? I mean, so diminishing the powers of the monarch by saying your powers are not absolute which leads to habeas corpus. I mean, if you snatch me up, you got to tell me why, all this kind of thing. And so if the world was an audience to this, the world would be clapping. The Chinese would be clapping. The Ghanaians, what we call the Ghanaians, the Nigerians would be clapping. Great, y'all catching up. <laughs> Look, they got a system where the king can do everything. And then they tried to, and then they put in the textbooks the lie that it was us. No, that was y'all. You know what I'm saying? Did you forget Robin Hood? This is capitalism. You know what I'm saying? Robin Hood is a hero because he's a thief. Yeah, he's a thief because you set up capitalism. Come on now, think, think, children, think. But at any rate, so 12th century, 13th century, let's say that's Act One. You know they're forming this, and then by the end of Act One, they push their way out of Western Eurasia using some of the information that was left in the Iberian Peninsula by the Muslims, including latitude, longitude, algebra, this kind of thing. They ain't just come, some people think the world is flat. Many of them knew it wasn't. Cristobal Colon had been sailing up and down what he called the Guinea coast to Africa for years. Man and boy, I sailed the Guinea coast. Read his, read his journals. Ends up though, 
not realizing there's a whole ass body of land between there and Asia because you're not like Marco Polo and then went that way. You went the other way. And so you bump into these islands and they're the end of act one. In act two, Ophelia settled Egypt is like the boat showed up. We're here now. And when we got this long period of struggle that aligns with act two of the rise and fall of the West, settler colonialism, having developed the roots of what become whiteness over there, export it over here, except the longer they stay here, what happens? Over there, you're French, not even French. You know, you're Gallic, and then here come the Franks and this kind of thing. In England, you're English, not even English. Why? Because you got the Irish, you got, I mean, in other words, it's gonna dissolve along geographical differences, but over here, you begin to form common identity. What's that common identity? No, Ignatia writes about it. Uh, I mean, so many people write about it. Whiteness. Whiteness means you can retain being Italian and Irish, but you also need something to gird you because you're now part of a settler invasion and you're not the people who were here. In fact, you're going to demote them from being people. And in fact, you're going to define yourself as people and everybody else in a hierarchy of non-humanity with the natives being there. And at the bottom of it are these poor human beings who you set upon who didn't realize what you were doing until it was too late, who are now beefing with each other from this other. You, you done brought them into the hemisphere, into this mess, and you call them black. But black was not created first. White was created first. And you got to have an anti-white. The anti-white in this racial hierarchy becomes black. And that's where you see Colin Woodward writing a very interesting book. This is what Woodard says. Union tells a story of the struggle to create. By the way, let me shrink this down. Let me shrink it from the in the heights, global hemispheric identities that converge in uh, in Washington Heights. Let me shrink it down from all the African echoes that exist. Let's just shrink it to the continental United States. I see you, Greg Abbott, you shovel mouth white supremacists who can fail. The best you can do is put a pamphlet in somebody's house when they, in somebody's hand when they get a driver's license. We're coming to you. We're coming to you, baby. we coming. Union, let's shrink it to the United States. Union tells the story of the struggle to create a narrative for the United States, one that could hold its rival regional cultures together and forge for the first time a genuine American nationhood. Its authors were a small group of committed individuals, historians, political leaders, and novelists. What he argues is very interesting. What he argues is he traces uh, what Abbott does is trace the lives of three people who were born in the early 19th century. And when you read it, it's interesting because he. He traces three, two white scholars. And Frederick Douglass. The first, in fact, let me just read it so you can so we can get it together. He says, um, hold on. This emerging nationalist story was immediately and powerfully contested by another set of intellectuals and firebrands. So the first person that he talks about, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Um, oh, oh, <laughs> Joe, I'm sorry. Of course, duh. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Let me, let me reset for a second because there's other things I'm trying to make. Remember, so I can bring it all together. George Bancroft. Those of you who study history, y'all know Bancroft's history of the United States. Bancroft's trajectory in the 19th century, I got to tell the story of an American nation. One doesn't exist. Remember, 13 of, of Britain's 17 North American colonies revolted and got away from them. What did they have in common? They were against George III and the British. Once they got out of it, well, we're together? No. We're not together except on common interests. And do you all know from then to this day, this is where federalism comes from. In fact, I'd read it for you. Yeah, 
Here we go. These colonies that we call the 13 original colonies had created a joint military command, the Continental Army, and a sort of treaty organization, the United States of America under the Articles of Confederation. Each of these American states was sovereign and independent, having agreed only to delegate defense, foreign trade, and foreign policy duties to their shared body, the Congress, which had fled from place to place during the conflict. Nobody really knew what this United States was or what it should become, or even if it should continue to exist at all. You know who held it together in terms of leadership? The man they tried to make king and said, no, nah, I ain't gonna be no damn king. And that was George Washington. Then after he died, they fought over the body. They created the federal city, DC. So they set aside money to create a shrine to bury him here. Virginia, his plantation where he's at, they wanted to keep him. He ended up in Virginia. But what's my point? By the time Bancroft, George Bancroft comes along, 19th century, the United States, and this is why I tell people all the time, people say, why do you keep saying that? I say, you know what? Let me just let it, maybe you, we used to say when I was in grad school many, many years ago, we say, I know you don't believe no black people, so let's go find a good white source. What? This good white source, Colin, what it would tell you? There are many different nations in this country. In fact, Colin Woodward goes on to say, if a nation can be described as a people with a sense of common culture, history, and belonging, there were, in effect, a half dozen of them within these, quote, United States. And outside New England, there wasn't a single state that wasn't divided between two, or in the case of Maryland and Pennsylvania, three of them. So nation, if you're talking about a common set of memories, a common identity, see how we're working toward critical race theory and the, the rejection of critical race theory. I, look, I, I embrace y'all. I want you to fight critical race theory because we're in act three now. See, this was always going to come down to the final conflict. Y'all watch movies? You know, at some point, Batman got a fight cane. <laughs> so, yeah, it, looked it looked dreary when he had all the police underground and he then took over the businesses and you are going to have to die. Yeah, yeah, but but you know at the end, Batman going to win. Oh, in case y'all not following, black people, we're Batman. In it. But anyway, the point is, uh, <laughs> Kane, that's Abbott and that hillbilly governor of Florida, you're going to lose, but it's going to be a little pain before then. Remember, Ophelia settled Egypt, who then allows that choir name for her to come in with many thousands gone, meaning what? This is a spiritual thing. You can't do nothing about this. So at any rate, what he says is, then he introduces the second of the three people. It's Cat Sims, William Gilmore Sims. William Gilmore Sims is a scholar who goes with ethno-nationalism. Because in Sims' mind, this is a white state. America's a white state. So Sims, Ted Cruz, who is hilarious for saying this, also proving that there are white Hispanics, um, uh, Joe Manchin, Alia, this is a white country. For Tim Scott, having been brainwashed, America's not a racist country. Okay, you only get to that, bruh, if you concede that the ethno-nationalists who define America as a white state and then define you as, look at how great we are, because we even let a Negro like Tim Scott take a shower and put on a suit and walk around in here as a United States Senator. That's how they define progress, which is why we still crave their awards. Shout out to the Pulitzer and the Grammys. This is why we still crave the attention. That's why we say, I feel seen. Why? Because as an ethno state, your humanity depends on them recognizing you. And so critical race theory is attempting to hammer away at that, but it begins hammering away at it by taking the stories they told and remixing them and telling them back to them, which triggers the ethno-nationalists. Let's finish what he says here. This emerging nationalist story was immediately and powerfully contested by another set of intellectuals and firebrands who argued that the United States was instead an ethno-state, that's Sims, the homeland of the allegedly superior Anglo-Saxon race. That's the people like, uh, what's the boy that got fired from CNN, even as they brought Jeffrey Tubin back? Um, 
uh, Rick Santorum. The Indians didn't do nothing. White people brought everything. Now, there are people who say that's ridiculous, except y'all all think it. You know how we know you think it? Because you don't start the three-act play with a star and a set. You start it with Aristotle, even when you know better. In other words, you don't see, you call August Wilson American Shakespeare. You know, everything comes back to your act one and not world act ones, which is why the Chinese just be laughing every time you open your mouth. But the African people who don't have any memory, we be trying to get in there too. This is great. It's like she's like the, the black Marilyn Monroe. Anyway, we continue. Their vision helped create the new federation, the Confederacy, that led to the bloody civil war. The Confederacy, to the point you raised a minute ago, Professor Hunter. The Confederate states understood. This is why John C. Calhoun, who we talked about before, is so important. We understand that if this is an ethno state, we're going to express the core our values of a white ethno state. So when you read and hear Southern culture, they lost the battlefield civil war, but the cold civil war, which is the war between white nationalism and humanity, they have won the cold civil war because this country, the people who believe it's an ethno state, and I'm including all the people who think that everybody should stay, all those people believe it too. Why? Because you can come tear up the whole United States Capitol and we'll arrest those of you we got on camera, but we ain't touching none of the senators in them. Y'all can vote to say the president, not the president. And guess what? We'll let you keep coming in here. You ain't got no rules. And don't put it on mansion and cinema by themselves. Put it on everybody in the white nationalist party who voted against it, including them Negroes like that Negro congressman from Florida that just got elected who voted not to certify the election and all the Democrats who keep convening Congress. In other words, if y'all don't stand against this, it's an ethno state because whiteness is invulnerable. But guess what? The end of Act 3 is coming because guess what? The demographics is shifting. You can't change it. So now they've dropped all pretenses. What does that mean? Oh, wait, let, me, let, me, let me finish because this ain't this. The end of, he gets this. This gets us to the end of the 19th century. Now we're in the 20th century. What does he write? He says their vision helped create the Federation, the Confederacy that led to bloody civil war. While defeated on the battlefield, they later won the War of Ideas, Cold Civil War, by placing Woodrow Wilson in the White House and achieving the first consensus pan-regional vision of the United States. This narrower, more exclusive vision of America would be overthrown by mid-century, but it was never fully vanquished. Professor Woodward, this is where I would disagree with you, bro. Because Woodrow Wilson is straight white nationalist. Remember, he screamed birth of a nation in the White House, said, alas, it's true. He wrote a history of the United States. He loved Thomas Dixon. You're a white nationalist openly and everybody since has coddled because what is fused into the dna of this country is the idea that the white settler project can somehow be reconciled with the rest of us without giving up the white settler mentality so now you got black people running around talking about well, you know our country you know our founding fathers what play you been watching george washington your dad why you keep talking about our founding fathers? We're in the Juneteenth corridor. This time last year, a lot of people didn't know what Juneteenth was. This year, the army celebrating it. <laughs> you got everybody coming in. Wait, how the army celebrating Juneteenth? How how everybody celebrating Juneteenth? And half y'all was fighting to keep us slaves. <laughs> in fact, 
maybe we get a chance to talk about Annette Gordon Reed's book on Juneteenth. This is a whole nother conversation. I got some Juneteenth conversation to have next week anyway, but we're in that corridor right now. I'm bringing that up to say this while Colin Woodard would say we got past that, but it never quite went away. No, bruh. That's just part of act three It's you haven't avoided the conflict. And this is where we end in the state of Florida. Let's, let's do with Texas versus Texas is 30 seconds. Greg Abbott signed the law on Monday, the 1836 project. Mexico abolished enslavement in 1829. And all these white boys is running out there to the top third of Mexico, trying to colonize Mexico. And then when Mexico realized that enough white people were coming into those regions to displace and outnumber the number of Mexicans that were out there, they tried to reestablish authority in 1835. Remember the Alamo? But at any rate, that's Mexico. So what did those white boys do? They declared the slave-holding Texas Republic in 1836 and went to war. So this white boy on Monday signed the 1836 project, 1836 is the year they declared themselves an independent republic, slave holding republic. Uh, Sister Aya, who's building the library in her hometown of Apobo, Aya and them are today down there rallying against uh, this critical race theory, uh, anti-critical race theory legislation right now, today. And so the United States annexed, they annexed Mexico in 1845, John C. Calhoun and them. And this is the argument, this is where you gotta go back and read this stuff, because to me, and I made this point the other night. My man, Mark Lamont Hill, had me debating this guy who's uh, when he's National Association of Scholars. He's got a 1620 project. It's all the numbers are the same to me. That's why I need to come and watch us and go to narrative and get the deeper understanding and then begin to do the study on our own. Because really, this is ultimately about us all acquiring this information as we experience it and then talking to each other and building and acting on it. We'll talk about the action stage in a minute. But 1845, the United States annexes Texas and here we are in 2021, they signed an 1836 uh, uh, project piece, finally on Texas, that can only do two things. One, it says, you know, we'll give you a pamphlet when you come get a register for a driver's license. We'll talk about Texas history with all these omissions. Are you gonna emphasize the fact that you had slavery written into the constitution in 1836? Of course you are, because you're white nationalists. Respect to you, Greg Abbott, respect to you. Because see, at some point, when you got to have a final confrontation, you got to know who Bane is. He's slugging the wrong cat. You know, if you punch Robin in the face, you know, lost your man. No, that's Bane with the mask on. That's him. I don't know that mask would fit over the bottom half of Greg Abbott's face. Perry, that's why you don't have no mask mandate. Have you ever seen Greg Abbott? But at any rate, the second thing the 1836 project does is the 1836 project uh, gives a governor's 1836 award. Now, imagine you're a black child. Do you want the 1836 award from the governor of Texas? Wait, I'll be in here naked with my shirt off talking about give us us free if I take this award. No, hell no. And guess what? You know they're going to find a Negro child or a Latinx, a Hispanic child, a Mexican child or Honduran to get that award to first because that's what they do, which leads us finally to Florida. The Florida State Board of Education on Thursday. And I thought it was beautiful. Shout out to Keisha King. Keisha King was the black woman who y'all probably saw on social media who testified against critical race theory. She's a member of a group called Moms for Liberty. Y'all look up Moms for Liberty. They've been on Tucker Carlson's show, Glenn Beck's show. They white nationalists. And they have a uniform script that they read. Texas, I'm sorry, in Florida. I'll tell you about the law in a second as we finish up. This is what Keisha King, Miss King said. Says she got 
one child in the public school. She got children in public schools, children in the private schools because of school choice. Oh, that's where I realized this is a script. Then she went to her phone. I mean, at least print it out. But anyway, I know it's a different time. Scrolling through her phone, reading. And as she's reading, going back over words, she I realized, yeah, you didn't write this. This is the Moms for Liberty. Uh, liberty is another word for uh, white nationalism. All these are words for white nationalism, liberty, patriotism, all this stuff. And when you come to them and say, if you, those of you who say, well, you know, no, you don't understand critical race theory. No, I'll, I'll, in fact, she, she doesn't even call it critical race theory. You know, what she calls it CRT because they don't, it doesn't matter. It's a label like liberal. It's a, it's a label like progressive. Well, let's change from liberal to progressive. Fool, as long as it means you, hell, we've changed from Negro to black. As long as it's you, we don't care. She says, people think that CRT is about just telling history from a balance. He said, no. It's more deeper, it's deeper and more dangerous than racial sensitivity, unfavorable American history. She says it's deeper than uh, teaching the, the Jim Crow, she calls it Jim Crow history, and then squinches up her face. I'm like, wow, you are, you, you chocolate colored sister up here squinching your face at Jim Crow. They got you good. So anyway, let me see, can I, I think I, I wrote it down. Let me, okay, here we go. Let me read it for you. She says, this is how she defined critical race theory which means this is how they define critical race theory. So when you're talking about critical race theory, we, we talked about what it is. That's on the narrative side. Here's what they will tell you it is as they label it to fight you at the end of act three. A teaching that there is a hierarchy in society where white, male, heterosexual, able-bodied people and deem, are deemed the oppressive, the oppressor, and everyone else outside of that status is oppressed. This is a black woman. Let's do it one more time. A black woman is stand up reading from her phone she defines critical race theory. She says critical race theory is a teaching that there is a hierarchy in society. Okay. Where white male, she's not that, heterosexual, I don't know if she is, and she got children, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, able-bodied people. Now them three right there don't make no sense. White male, heterosexual, able-bodied people. So all people are male. Here's the trick. In the Western cultural uh, stance, they absolutely are male. All people are male. Women are not human in the same hierarchy. There's a hierarchy, gender hierarchy in whiteness. You say, well, that's true in all societies. When people tell me that's true in all societies, I immediately say, can I get your uh, number at least find your contact? Because I really need to sit and listen to you since you know everything. I've never met a person who knew everything. And then, no, I don't know everything. Okay, then what have you studied? And then I'll suggest some things and ask if they studied it. If they say no, I say, therefore, I can't listen to you anymore. Because that's what they lead with. Slavery was in every society. Really? Was it the same? The house system among the Igbo? Was that the same as what y'all did with child slavery? Hmm. Uh, the Slavs, the word Slav itself comes from white on white crime. And then you figured out a way to turn it from white on white crime to that name, meaning blackness. Is that is that part? Did you see that happen in the Arab slave treatment? Oh, in fact, let's just get to the central issue. The central issue of unfree labor arrangements in Africa did not involve stripping someone of their language and culture. Yours did. Uh, is that enough of a difference? Uh, and then they and then they finally have to, you know, after they get this right here, they come to, I don't know. Okay, then why did you say it? Because it wasn't my objective to understand. It's my objective to stay in power. Do you understand? This is what this is about. So Keisha King stands up and says, I'm against it. I'm against CRT. Because as a white male, heterosexual, uh, able, but wait, you're a white male now? I, look, I'm just reading what they told me to read. After and 
I'm part of this group, which means I probably got a little funding. I probably get access to somebody. You know, if somebody gets elected, I get to take a picture with them. The hillbilly governor, maybe I'll get appointed on the local school board or something like that. Or I'll get maybe the, the revenue commissioner or something since they can't seem to keep a lot of these degenerates in Florida in office because they keep doing things that are unspeakable even for them. So, but at any rate, she's doing what she needs to do. That don't mean that she's clueless. See, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in feeling sorry for people like that. And I don't believe in saying they're clueless. I believe in saying the same thing that they should say to all of us, which is what you're a human being in the world. You made a choice, but you don't, you don't get to, uh, as old folks say, throw the rock and hide your hand. So at any rate, in Florida, here's what the rule says that they passed that uh, the hillbilly hordes uh, leader uh, in that ill-fitting suit. And as somebody who doesn't wear suits, anytime I can tell that that's an ill-fitting suit, it's either one of two things. Either you don't know, which I don't believe, or you're playing a role because, see, DeSantis is positioning himself, as I said before, 1619 is about 2022 and 2024. They're trying to win elections. He wants to be Trump. You know, yeah, I'm friends with Trump till he collapsed. Now I'm the one. Josh Hawley and I'm trying to elbow him out of the way. Tom Chinless Cotton. State Board of Education, here's the rule. The State Board of Education passed this through. DeSantis signed it. People were protesting this week the mask mandate outside the meeting. So it's all tied in together. Ain't got to do with substance. They said the law in Florida says that school districts should emphasize historical facts over what they call, quote, fiction projects or theory masquerading as fact. You tell me out of 100 of them, which one of them could distinguish, particularly when they push in propaganda. Number two, it names critical race theory and the 1619 project as not acceptable in schools. Okay, let me tell you what that does. It assumes the 1619 project is the framework, but you ain't read the 1619 project. If you really wanted to get funny with it, in fact, it's very interesting. There's a book here, you know, I try to read it all. A book that came out recently called The New York Times 1619 Project and the Racialist Falsification of History. These the haters, they published their own book. But as you're reading through the haters, you're like, man, y'all crazy, man. Mm. Shit, that's a good point. Oh, no, you're crazy, right? Hmm. Oh, that's a good point. In other words, but this is at least the haters putting it down. These people don't even know what it is. They call it CRT because they couldn't spell it if it came up and asked them for a dollar. The next element of the law says that it names, after they said, pe pe critics were like, well, you don't want to tell the truth. So then the, what they did, they added some categories and said, this is acceptable. Teaching about civil rights. So you're going to teach about Harry Moore. You blew up his house Christmas. Mm -hmm. You're going to teach about Florida. You're going to teach about the Seminoles. You're going to talk about John Horse. You're going to teach about the Seminole Wars. You're going to teach about Fort Mose. You're going to teach about, oh, oh, we got problems now. See, in other words, these laws ain't got no teeth. Anyway, you teach about civil rights. You teach about slavery. Do you know the only thing that was enumerated in the earlier version of the law? They had to amend to say that. Because, you know, the legislature down there fighting like hell to get stuff in. The only category they said you must teach if you're going to teach about stuff that is, quote unquote, controversial before they pushed. And then they said, well, a minute, we'll say civil rights and slavery. The only category that was named was the Holocaust. <laughs> I want you to think about that because Holocaust is is time and space neutral, except it's not. Shout out to those who suffered to a world that acknowledged the suffering, who is now made just like slave became coterminous with black people. Holocaust cannot be used in the contemporary formation to talk about enslavement, to talk about the centuries. It talks about that period of the Nazi persecution and execution and extermination of millions of human beings who were Jewish. So 
But guess what? It was in. They had to fight to get slavery and civil rights in. What does that tell you? Politics. Politics. And then finally, it gives no details on enforcement. No details on enforcement. They're going to put it at district level. And here's where we end with this and tie it to Mississippi and tie it to how they have framed this whole settler project in Act 3. You know what triggers a violation, Professor Hunter? You can guess because you gave an example of it from Mississippi. What do you think triggers a violation? What triggered the, uh, the validatorian and salutatorian crisis? Uh, the the um, the winning of that position by two black people. Wasn't enough. They were going to go ahead until what happened? Oh, uh, protests, the outrage and the, the, the threat of lawsuits. That's exactly right. The Florida statute is triggered by complaints. So all you got to do, this is what they did. Let me, let me just be very clear about this because this is how it works. This is act three now. We're coming to the final conflict. And I'm going to tie all this together. Here's where we go. We have a preview of the final conflict with this. This has never been a nation. It never had a common narrative. You can, you know, you can have your own interpretation of facts, but you should have all the facts. We were captured. We were held captive. Fact. Well, that's divisive. <laughs> is it dividing us as human beings or is it dividing your capacity to maintain white nationalism in a hierarchy that you said uh, doesn't exist and got a black woman to read the script? No, there is a hierarchy. How do we know? Because every time we get close to touching it with facts, <gasps> you're trying to preserve whiteness. And I'm for that. I'm for you doing that because I'm one of the people having studied and will continue to study to the day I draw my last breath. And as an ancestor, I'm sure I'm going to be somewhere studying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But I know enough to know it had to end this way because y'all not going to do this without that violence. We, we did a whole two-part thing on John Brown. Y'all go back over there and narrative. I'm very, very proud of that conversation we had. But this is a preview of it. This isn't a nation. And read Colin Woodward. Let, let Colin tell you. So I ain't got to tell you. He's saying they thought about this up into the 20th century. They consolidated around ethno-nationalism and somewhere around the 50s and 60s, that receded. Um, that's where I get off the boat with him. He can't bring that up. And then he hedges his bets by saying it still lingers. See, that's how white folk who know what it is, who want it to change, but who don't necessarily know if it can change and still want to retain their relationship with everybody else, that's how they hedge their bets. Well, it lingers on. Lingers? You better ask some black people whether it's, ask George Floyd whether it lingered. It lingered on his neck for damn near nine minutes. Come on, 848. I mean, come on now. Ask Breonna Taylor whether it lingered. Lingered on. White nationalism is in the genetic makeup of this settler state. And the only thing national about it is whiteness. Everything else, whether it be Hamilton or in the Heights, becomes an accessory that, that as long as it doesn't threaten displacing whiteness can be celebrated. Hell, it'll win all the stuff. We don't have to go back to the Dominican Republic. We can stay right here. This is my island now. Yeah, as you are displaced from that island by the True Heights people. The True Heights people live in the financial district, bro. So while they gentrifying and pushing you out so they can get to their job at Wall Street a little quicker, you saw what Jamie Dimon said last week. Jamie Dimon, CEO, said, I'm canceling all Zoom meetings. I'm tired of this. Everybody come back to work. So guess what? If you work with Jamie Dimon, what is it? Uh, Merrill Lynch? Not Merrill Lynch. They gone. Uh, JP Morgan. JP Morgan. 
JP Morgan, JP Diamond said, I'm canceling all Zoom meetings. I ain't gonna be no more damn Zooms. Bring your ass to work. That's the heights. The heights is called global transnational capitalism. You Where you live in Washington Heights, you're allowed to live there as long as they need somebody to polish their floors, cut the yard, and serve up some food on holidays. But let's be clear, the movie we can celebrate, why? Because it celebrates all that stuff and not power, even as it plays around the edges of gentrification. So this is a preview. The complaint-based approach is how they destroyed their chance in the 19th century to actually build potentially a nation. And let me just end with that. Let me just end with that. This week, two brothers in Tennessee sued McDonald's, headquartered in Illinois, saying, you steer black potential franchisees, franchisers, you steer them to poor communities where there's more overhead, the insurance is higher, property value is lower, this kind of thing, and you set us up to fail. I read the lawsuit. And in reading the lawsuit, by the way, the sister who wrote the book on McDonald's just won the Pulitzer Prize. I don't know how they pick Pulitzer Prizes because I read a whole lot of stuff. And I'm saying, these books never get to the list. And these books always win. It was a lot of Black people won Pulitzer Prizes this last time. I'm saying, y'all really trying to stay relevant, aren't you? I mean, but at any rate, the point is this. When they sued them, you know what they used? They used that same law Byron Allen used. They used that Civil Rights Act, 1866-1870, what is codified now, Section 1981 of the 42 United States Code. Why is that important? Let me read to you what that this is a law that was passed during Reconstruction. This was the this was the chance the United States had to become a nation and it blew it, which means it's probably over. We're in Act three now. That was during Act, Act, Act two. The Civil Rights Act, 1866 and 1870, Section 1981 reads this way as follows. I think I pulled it up here. All persons within the jurisdiction of the United States shall have the same right in every state and territory to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, give evidence, and to the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of persons and property as is enjoyed by white citizens and shall be subject to like punishment, pains, penalties, taxes, licenses, and exactions of every kind and no other. The phrase there you want to remember, as is enjoyed by white citizens. Those six words. It was passed during Reconstruction while the smoke was still clearing on the battlefields of the Civil War to ensure that formerly enslaved people would be treated full and equal. It precedes the 13th Amendment. It precedes the 13th Amendment. I'm going to footnote this quickly because I got my eye on the clock and I know we've been going for a long time, but I want to make sure we get this because we deep in the weeds now, but I love it because this is the type of intellectual work we have to do. I'm going to footnote this because when I said 13th Amendment, it remind me in 19, I'm sorry, in 2012, I went to the New York Historical Society because they had on display the, the copy of the 13th Amendment that Abraham Lincoln signed before he got his brains blown out. Saying it, he signed it on February 1st, 1865. Upstairs that, that same time, they had an exhibit called Revolutions. The, they, they build it as the first exhibit that put the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, and the American Revolution in conversation with each other. And on display upstairs was the only known copy of the Haitian Declaration of Independence from 1804. And I remember looking at that Haitian, reading that Haitian Declaration of Independence, shout out to my former student, now colleague at Howard University, Natalie Pierre, brilliant on this, from Haiti herself, raised in Brooklyn, brilliant scholar writing about Haitian independence and statecraft. The Haitian Declaration of Independence, establishing this notion of not only independence, but ultimately in the Haitian uh, constitution, 
raceless participation in the society. But they don't say they're colorblind. They said, everybody in Haiti, if you're in Haiti, you're black. But I'm white. No, no, no. We're creating blackness as a political status. There will be no white people on this island, on this part of the island. So, but I'm white. I don't care how you look. Black becomes the standard for citizenship. It's, it's brilliant. You know what I'm, I'm downstairs looking at the, uh, in the case, and I'm looking at this document, and I'm saying, this is crazy. Because about a year and a half earlier, I had come up to go over to J.P. Morgan's house, ironically, to look at the Magna Carta because it was there. And they had the volcano and the ash hit and they, they had to keep it. And they, This is how white supremacy worked, y'all. This is what you call international whiteness. Do you know why the Magna Carta, this was a copy from 1217, the first one I'd ever seen. You know why it was in the United States? Because the alumni of Oxford University, that's in England, right? Whiteness, international whiteness. The alumni of Oxford University met in New York and Oxford sent it over for them to look at. Then it got trapped here. J.P. Morgan's people were like, yo, can we put it on display for a little while while y'all get the safe passage back? They said, sure. They put it up. I read about it in the Times. I got my hands up there. I want to see it. Why? Because that's the document where y'all finally caught up to some of the other world societies and said the king can't just do whatever the hell he want to do. We had a whole thing on narrative on that. Remember, we read, uh, we talked about Fonte customary law and 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 anyway, John Mississauga and them. So I had seen that. Now I'm up here looking at the Haitian Con Declaration of Independence, which precedes the Haitian Constitution, which is going to remove race from the center by declaring blackness the the default position and saying everybody can be it. Which of course you know they got to reject because they got to try to preserve whiteness, which is why Haiti got cut off from everybody because whiteness formed like Voltron, just like Biden is over there now. They were over there back in 1804. You can't recognize them. They didn't recognize them until the 1860s. And then I'm looking at Lincoln's signature. And I'm saying, this is the document that white people said, you are no longer a slave. But it don't mean that you're no longer black because they had a small window to elevate blackness to whiteness, to do what the Haitians were trying to do. And you know what they did it? The Civil Rights Act of 1866, which comes after the 13th Amendment, but before the 14th. Now, why is that important? Now, remember, well, people say, well, if you've got a 14th Amendment, which, is, which ensures equal protection of the law and citizenship to people, why do you, why, you know, that replaces the Civil Rights Act of 1866, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. What the, what the uh, 14th Amendment does is establish the prerequisites for citizenship. So when you have Kamala Harris go to Central America and tell people, stay home, you know what that reinforces? That America, the great shining city, where citizenship means you eat off the golden paved streets, still sees this notion of exceptionalism bound up in its concept of citizenship and all the fights, whether it be critical race theory, pro-critical race theory people, scholars, activists, everybody fighting to get elevated to the gold standard of humanity, which is American identity. That is still a flaw because as I said, just like COVID doesn't know country boundaries, just like finance don't know any boundaries, neither does culture. So you're trying to make people in this little square place called a country elevate you to their humanity, but you don't realize that years ago, 
your culture bonded with a concept and a hierarchy that will prevent you from ever being human. And they can, every time they want, they can get your music, your dance, give it awards. And then as soon as they figure out how to reverse engineer it, pay themselves to perform it. And you still getting people killing you with the knee on the neck or coming in your house in the middle of the night, shooting and killing you. And you can't figure out that those two things are so inextricably related that by the time the end of act, we're going to have to have a fight. And that's what they're gearing up to do in Florida and Texas and all these other people and all the voter suppression things. They're trying to gear up because they know the fight is coming. Finally. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 and 1870, you know how they fixed it? This is how they fixed it. It says in the statute, Professor Hunter, that all persons should enjoy the same rights and be treated as is enjoyed by white citizens. They wrote it in the statute and then the courts. You know what they did over the arc of the time since then? They elevated the status of white people to white people. <laughs> in case that confused anybody listening, this is what they did. They interpreted that phrase to say that any race-based remedy is unconstitutional. No, but that's not what it's for. This is to remedy those of us who weren't included in the full definition. Well, no, we interpret that right to be treated as a white person as extending to white people too. So they're able to maintain whiteness as the standard. At the same time, they say no one can plead race. No one can plead race unless you establish that it was intentional, which is why they dismiss, uh, they 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 uh returned Byron Allen's ca uh, case, and then he settled, which was probably the trajectory from all along. In the McDonald's case, I read it's only a five page decision. The, the 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 judge remanded, but he dismissed their claim that there was a pattern of this, and said you ain't give me no evidence of that. One of the brothers, one of the two brothers, had ten franchises in Tennessee. He's down to two. The other brother couldn't get. Uh, and get insurance on his uh, on his uh, his location, and McDonald's is like, nah, that's because of your rating. It wasn't because. And the judge says, okay, you got to come back with better evidence than this. Otherwise, I'm going to dismiss this again. Why? Because in order to prove race discrimination, now you damn near got to go to the court and say the man shot me in the face while saying, and even then. There have been cases under 1981 that were dismissed because they said, well, that wasn't racial. That was personal animus. In other words, they looking for ways. But but it all triggers, and this is where I'm going with this. This is how these critical race, anti-critical race theory statutes will operate. It's five million black children in the room. The teacher says, all you five million black children, we are going to stop here. And I want to play you a little song from an album by a woman named Ophelia Settle Egypt. It's called Many Thousands Gone. But before that, we're going to listen to her because she actually recorded the testimony that she's going to read from this album. And there's a stirring conversation, isn't it? The next day, there's a call because there are five million black children in there, a white school teacher in there, and a little white girl in the back. Oh, I'm sorry. No. There are five million black students, one white teacher, and no other white people in the room. But they get a call from some random ass subsidized by the Koch brothers person whose only job in Mississippi is to sit at home and call every school in the damn district and say, I heard, and that triggers. Because many thousand gone. So that, playing that, I understand they're in there teaching CRT. 
There's no definition, but it triggers the fight. And that is going to lead us eventually to the point where, you know what? We finally get it. We get it. We get it now. Let's fight. Because you can't, you can't, race is not rational. You have to fight these people at some point. And those of us who have children in these schools. Yes. The, the fight becomes even more uh, important. We have to, we have to. Um, and, 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 and sign up for narrative. Because see, this, you know what? This two hours we spent, this hour and 50 minutes we spent, the solution isn't trying to beg people for your humanity. The solution is to build, rebuild your structures. Because we had structures. And we have structures. That's the fundamental solution. Um, right now, currently, the ways of knowing, the, the social structure, all that you talk about. Yes. The framework for how we yes. study is yes. in narrative in the resources section. Yes. So sign up, check that out. And we're adding to it. Would you say the big launch in, in September? I'm working on this seven. You got me the number, right? This seven part introduction to Africana studies class. So we've done a great job of having conversations. And now on the narrative side, we're going to have it all laid out. Y'all, so, which is the new year uh, yes. for Africans, we're going to, you know, give you the thought. Uh, is that how you say it? T-H, thought? That, that's the Greeks. The, 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 oh, Dr. Beatty will show you how to do it in the glyphs. Yeah. The, the comedic name is uh, Jehuti. D-J-E-H-U-T-Y. Okay. We might have to change that from Thoth's workshop to Jehudi's workshop. Well, that'll be Jehudi, yeah. 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 If so it's we're us, gonna, it's going to be going to do a whole, you know, we got Mario Beatty in there that's going to yes. do hieroglyphs, and then we're going to have this conversation. Yes. Uh, episode three, where we talked about the Pulitzer, is exclusively available in narrative right we now. We did, didn't we? We did talk about the Pulitzer extensively. Because you know something about that. <laughs> a little something. Just a little something. Little something. Also, uh, episode 61 is available on on uh, on this page in this space right now so you don't have to go to narrative it's still available where we talked about critical race theory yes in detail so yeah and this is a building block so you know we don't need to repeat everything's going to be here if you think about this 20-year journey of of building this repository of knowledge and information right. and self-awareness and understanding and remembering that's, that's right. what narrative is and i'm like really grateful uh for this team that we have uh of which you know i told you the other day first of all when you ask a question i don't know if anybody else gets anxiety because i'm like i don't want to get the wrong answer I, I don't think i know the answer i was, I was like uh, do, do i know the answer and of I, course you know the answer. like uh butterflies in my stomach like oh shoot um, no, yeah. no. <laughs> cool. you, you know the answer you know the answer but um, I just, you know, I, I I feel so grateful because again, I can't go back. You know, you it's too late. Like you have opened all of the the, the mental, spiritual chakras, and it, every time something is not right, it's just it's right there. It's so evident. Um, we were talking also about this fight, this war, uh, and I, I still believe, you know, they're still fighting that war. Um, you were talking about the different places. And so I wanted to invite someone in. Uh, she, I've known her for a minute because the Flint water crisis was uh, on everyone's mind at yeah, some point. Of course. We had our, our, our then president go there and drink some dirty water and pretend to drink some dirty water. And, yeah. and supposedly there was like uh, $600 million there to fix the problem. Oh, wow. We're, we're going to talk about the problem, but I want to spend the time that we have together to inspire people on, you know, figuring out how we can win this war to give people the tools. That's right. Because we all live someplace. So Flint is a microcosm to me of a lot of places in America where we have uh, leadership, 
doing things unto us and then we're complaining about it and not really having the tools to fix it. So mm. let me welcome in uh, Dr. Karen Weaver, former mayor. Oh, of wow. Karen, hey. uh, interim, interim president of the Black Mayors Association. So the, we're going to go ahead. Oh, welcome. The American Mayors Association. Listen, I have been listening. I'm so happy to be here. I've been listening and I have been enjoying this and just taking it all in. I see him and his family. My daughter went to FAMU, but I do have on my Tougaloo. Oh, Tougaloo. I got to get a Tougaloo. I need a shirt. <laughs> Huh? Are you a Tougaloo alum? Yes. You know what? You know what? Tougaloo. What? I love Tougaloo. I go down there to the Benny Thompson Center. Sometimes I just go Tougaloo and sit in the grass. Oh <laughs> my goodness. Hey, y'all yeah. better get up on that Tougaloo life. How That's are right. you? It's so good to see you. Look, and you were just hitting on some things. And I said, oh my goodness. And and I, I've just got to tell you, the last thing you were talking about when you were talking about how they want to dismiss race. Yes. Uh, so let me tell you, because that's exactly what happened in this this piggy bank settlement that we got in the state of Michigan. Could you um, catch us up on that? Because a lot of us. Tell are. You. And, but yeah. I got to say the NAACP filed race discrimination. The Michigan Department of, of Civil Rights said it was based on race. It was systemic racism based yes. on race and class. The judge threw it out. That's what they do. That's what they do. And yeah. when you said that, I wrote it down. I was like, oh, my goodness, we've been talking about this. So one of the things I want to say is, is Flint fixed? No, Flint ain't fixed yet. Uh, and, 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 and it's bad because we were on a fast track. You know, when I left office, we were a year ahead of schedule of changing those pipes. The pipes have not they have not completed it. And there is no reason that it should not have been completed. And I'm sure they worked like hell to try to get rid of you so they could get oh, you know it. I know why I'm not there. I, I was talking with, with Karen the other day. I said, I know why I'm not there because I won't shut my big mouth because right. it's not going to go away. You know, they wanted the water to go away. Yes. It, it wasn't going to. And then this money, all this money that came into Flint, they wanted me to say, well, yeah, I got it. I didn't get that money. <laughs> you know, I yeah, didn't get that you. How, how did go that to the city. And that, that, listen, you know what money we got? We got the money for, we got the hundred million from the federal government to change pipes. We got 90 something million from the state in the lawsuit to change pipes. They didn't even put the money in the account. We did the work and had to put in invoices to get reimbursed. So it's not like they put 200 million in our account. It didn't go that way. And people think it went that way. Where did you get the money from? The only other money we got was from the Kellogg Center to do economic development. All the rest of the money went to the foundations. Of course. It went to the Chamber of Commerce. It went to a YWCA that's not even in Flint. You know, it went to all of these other entities. And because I was, you know, running my mouth about where the money went and I wasn't going to take the fall on that, I'm, I said, no, I'm telling. I'm telling. And this, and was, this is what they do overseas, the NGOs. They pay each other. The money never leaves the bank. They exactly. just go to their friends. So, so, so how did you all front the money that you did invest to in without getting reimbursed first? Well, you you know, the money? <laughs> we started off with $500,000. My God. That's what we started off with from the state. That's what we started <sighs> off with. And um, from and then we started, you know, submitting the invoices and, and we would get reimbursed. So that was what happened. My so God. then we get this loss, the settlement, right? Yes. Because we're suing. We find out, first of all, the EPA is not even part of the settlement. 
everybody thinks, well, the EPA is going to put money in. No, they're not. So how did they, how did they get out? Because they opt out, the judge let them out. I mean, how? You had to file individual lawsuits, and if you didn't do that right in the beginning, of course, which they can throw out most of them. Yes. You know, if you didn't do it in fifteen sixteen, and people didn't know then, of course, you can't be part of it. Of so. Course. So so we get this and they say, oh, it's the largest settlement in the history of the city of, in the state of Michigan. OK, the attorneys get 200 million off the top. Right. Which they never tell you. And but we kept telling them that was all I ever said. Was I mean, in, in, in the newspaper, this. every lawyer knows but that the newspapers. Oh, you know, so so they get their 200 million. Now, whoever heard of the attorneys getting more than the victims? Oh, even the, even the victims who lost someone to legionnaires, if they're 49 and under, they get 1.2 million, 50 and over. The older you are, the less you get. And then to get money, uh, you have to document that you were impacted by the lead. You have to document you were impacted. It was documented all across the country and the world that we were poisoned, uh, you know, for 18 months. Right. Uh, so but we've got a document. And then the documentation that you that is required is so difficult to get. And, and the attorneys, remember, we've been in COVID. We've been in a pandemic. Of course. The offices were shut down for almost a year. So, so there was no... So is the statute, you know, it doesn't Hoffler, Do you know C.K. Hoffler, who is the um, president of the National Bar Association? Yes. Said, yes. In, and in a pandemic, first she said Flint is the worst uh, 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 disaster, you know, man-made environmental justice issue that we should be talking about. No question. Attorneys had an obligation to go above and beyond to communicate with the class, which is the people. Didn't do it. They were shut down. So we had no access to the attorneys. Then, yes, yes. I mean, so, I, don't, I don't understand how they didn't toll the, toll the time. I mean, they, that, and we asked. That's what we asked for. Yeah. And, okay, well, that didn't happen either. If this is all in the control of the judge, the presiding judge? Yeah. Yes. And then listen to this, what we find out a week and a half ago. The They said, you know, if you can document more damage, more lead damage, you can get more money. So the, the instrument that they use for documenting the bone yeah. lead density, a letter comes from the manufacturer to say this is not for use on humans. It's for use on scrap metal yeah. as and if they're gonna, they're gonna shift the liability to you and say if you did it it's on you because we told well, no, you the manufacturer told the attorney stop using it we want no part they wouldn't sell it to them they don't they got some but other attorneys started asking for them they said they're not supposed to be using this my and they god. told these attorneys you need to stop my god so 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 and 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 the exposure to cancer because it's not supposed to be used on humans yes so now what you're telling us we have to document the amount of lead in our system with harms us even more no that's that's but, i mean that, that, that how are you uh approaching this in terms of first of all just this conversation is reaching a whole lot of people who I'm glad the problem. But but in that process, and particularly since you now sit with and lead the body that could generate a critical mass of people across this country, not to mention our connections everywhere else. Exactly. To, to get this not only in the public eye, but then to drive policy and force some of these people to account. What's what what are you thinking down in terms of next steps and strategies? How how are you how are you beginning to formulate the next move? Well, one of them is 
really doing things like this because when you said a lot of people are getting this, and let me just give a shout out to our president, uh, Mayor Sylvester Turner from Houston. I do want to do that. Oh, wonderful. Yes, yeah, Mayor Turner. Turner. No question. So I want to give a shout out to him. But but our our issue, our challenge was it was being covered by the media. It was not being covered. Not being it covered. was being yeah. covered up, suppressed. <laughs> yes. So, so and, and that was why I reached out to Karen. I said, listen, we need some help. We need to get this yeah. story out because one of the things, while Flint was done to us by our government, you all said, we know we represent, so, there are so many Flints across this country and it's That's black right. and brown communities that don't have access to clean That's drinking right. water, you know, a crumbling infrastructure, you know, poor health healthcare issues. So, uh, so that was the first thing was, how do we start getting this story out there? How do we get it out there? One of the other things I've said is, you know what, uh, as you see, I'm, I'm getting it out there. I've asked people when you see me out there tweeting something, you see something from our mayors, put it out there. Yes. Put it out there. Lift it up because people don't know what's going on. They don't hear about Flint, so they think everything is good. And it's not. It. No. You know, it's not. And uh, so, so that's been one of our biggest challenges. And that's some of the challenges that you know, so many black mayors face so many black mayors face. You know, we can look at Jackson, Mississippi, and what's oh, yeah, my man Antar. Well, Chokeway, yeah, Choke yeah. Antar, yeah, his middle name Antar, right? Daddy, was that. I've been asking, listen, I've been asking people to, to do hashtag uh, reviving miss. Yes, oh, that's that the hashtag. Follow me right there. Yes, yes, because one of the things we want is the set aside that uh, the Great Lakes are getting. We want that there. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Even though even though Flint is in the Great Lakes state, and we couldn't get access to clean water, you know they don't care. They weren't they weren't thinking about us when they put those things in place. Now we do know it. We understand. But, but, that. but you were thinking about you were thinking about us, and we need to be thinking about us. To your point, exactly. the more of us to do that, we can move anything. We we just gotta stop you. We just got to be working um, You were elected mayor, um, and then somebody else was elected mayor. You know, we we vote for people because we expect them to do the work. You did the work, and then got voted out. So, well, so how, how do we stay? How do we stay on message? For me, this is about an yeah. action plan, right? We got to have a blueprint for how to move. Okay, so you're not there anymore. Now you're with the Council of Black Mayors, right? Yeah. No, it's the African American Mayors Association. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me get let me get That's my okay. point. That's okay. Yes. Yeah, I had to make sure I made the distinction. And, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and one of the things I want to make sure is people recognize the importance of that association. Let me just say that, because, you know, when you look at what's going on with voter suppression, when you look at what they're doing all across this country around voter suppression, I said that makes this organization even that much more important. I said because uh, black oh. mayors have power. Whether you stay mayor or you use it and you move up to Congress, you move up to senator, you move up to president, black mayors have power and they're trying to keep us from having those positions. And so this organization is important to support black mayors, to uplift black mayors, to give us access to resources and best practice and to elevate this voice on a national level. That's so that's right. one of the things we have to recognize is the importance of these kinds of organizations and, and not be swept up with other organizations. It's it's oh, fine to be part of other organizations, but so we, at our mayors at, at our, our mayors, mayors on Twitter. Yes. At our mayors Twitter. on Twitter. Okay. I got yep, it. At our mayors. At our mayors. So so that's one of the things. You know, I, I listen, I had an interview with the Hill about a week and a half ago, and they were asking about the infrastructure plan. 
and should it be watered down so we can get it through? I said, no, it should not be watered down. You know, we always want to water down things and filter things out. I said, because if that, I said, really, I could add some more to it. How about that? I said, but... <laughs> you know, we could add some more to it, but no, it can't be watered down because when you look at that, that's going to address so many of these inequities that we talk about, you know, whether, because when you look at jobs, jobs gives you access to quality healthcare, which we knew we didn't have anyway, right. you know, COVID shined a light on what we already knew, but, but it gives you access to those kinds of things. And that's one of the things that we were talking about. We need to be pushing that water is a basic, basic human right. It looks like life. environmental justice issues when you have these things in place. It gives you better educational opportunities when this stays in place. You know, they always want to put a Band-Aid where you need surgery. And one of the things I compared it to, I was talking with them. I said, here's what happens when you water it down. I said, oh, let's we'll just do this. When we were changing the pipes in the city yeah. of Flint, Yes. We, we were hydro vacuuming at first to see, is it copper or not? Well, I stopped hydro excavation because we were missing people. You dig a hole, you see copper, you mark it CC for copper to copper. We don't have to change those pipes. Well, one of the contractors didn't see it and dug it up. And we found out where it looked like it was copper, it was a repair. So don't just give us something. Oh, that, no. You see what I'm saying? Of course. For you to water this down is kind of like that little copper fix instead of a new copper pipe. Well, Dr. Weaver, let me ask you this because you know, it's interesting. I was reading an article uh, a couple of days ago, and I think it was the New York Times. Uh, Lauren Bobbert, that woman out of Colorado, the crazy ones keep stalking Congress people. She voted, she's saying she doesn't support the infrastructure bill, but the point that was being made in the article was that her district includes one of only three manufacturers of steel rail in the country and the infrastructure bill would put back to work people because it includes of course railroads amtrak and everything exactly. else so exactly. the people even but so so i guess i'm thinking about all those people who live not only in flint but who are in government in the state of michigan because we know how this works they try to take your power in increasing arcs and then even if the governor like wouldn't tries to get no they try to then strip her the legislature how do you how have you, because I know you, you've you engaged this in the trenches, how have you attempted to make it clear to these folks that they are literally choosing their identities over their lives? Because mm -hmm. we know that there will be no compromise in the infrastructure bill that the Republican Party will meet. He could say, okay, I'm down to a dollar, and they will still vote no, because the objective is not to do anything. But but how, how do these people keep voting? I mean, how have you how have you tried to break through that wall of ignorance with people who will literally kill themselves before they do anything to help themselves if they think <laughs> you're going to be helped? And that's isn't that the truth? Yeah, if the truth I mean, you're going to be helped. But and, how do you, I mean, how have you? Because you had to navigate that whole thing in, in Flint. I did. I did. And and, and like you said, and look where I am. I'm not the mayor now. No, but but you but but but, but you I, have a much broader. And that's what I, I told him. I said, you know what? I said, you may not know what you've done. Oh, they didn't There are all kinds of things I can say now uh, and I'm going to say. And one of the things I always told them from the beginning was my voice is my power. It doesn't matter which seat you're sitting in sometimes. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's, 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 that's kids would say that's bars. My right. voice I mean, is my power. I said, and I, I'm not in that seat, but I haven't stopped talking. I haven't stopped talking. I didn't stop talking before I became the interim executive director for AMA, as we call it. 
mm-hmm. uh, African American Mayors Association. I didn't stop talking, mm-hmm. uh, and and I've continued. And I said, you know, the Lord will put you in a place and elevate you when they think they've shut you down. I said, and 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 I knew something was going to happen. Something bigger was coming, and that's what it is. Uh, but let me say this: when you bring up elected officials, you have not heard any elected officials in the state of Michigan other than some of our council people talk about the water in the state of in the city of Flint, and that's why you have not heard about Flint because from local level, you have not heard our our mayor, you have not heard our state representatives, you have not heard our state senator, you have not heard uh, Congressman Kildee did say that the governor should go back and look at this settlement. You have not... You have not heard from any of our elected officials about the unfairness of this water settlement. You what haven't heard from any of our elect because it had to go away. You have not heard about any of our elected officials say anything about these lack of criminal charges. Charges. The governor got a misdemeanor. I saw that. A misdemeanor. Yes. And a thousand dollar fine. Yes. Yes, that's utterly absurd. I mean, so so is there a mechanism or a series, a, a set of tactics that is used? to mute those voices? Is it payoffs? Is it privilege? Is it favors? How, how does that work? You said all of those. You oh, said all man. of those. And, and, and that was, you know, and that was, that's what happened. That's where we are. Um, and it's really, sad. it's really, really sad. Uh, but people are getting on board. We have been able to get oh, this message okay. out, starting to get it out. In fact, I'm going to be speaking at the fairness hearing that's coming up in July. I think it's July 12th or 13th that I'll be speaking at that. Where is that? that, uh, It's going to be here in Flint at the federal court. Ah, Uh, Because, of course, this is active litigation. Yes. And and there were and and so in other words, there at some point they are a benchmark you have to meet. Right. Or their penalties. And and listen to this. Uh, When we uh, if we objected to this settlement. Yeah. Our attorneys, the attorneys representing the people did not even, they wouldn't file our objections for us. Oh, no, you can change counsel. Oh, that, that, yeah, that. Why would they? They got $200 million. So there's been media suppression. You know, it, it really has a message management. And that's why, I mean, that's why this black media is so important. The black media is. Black really media is so important. And that's how we've been getting our message out. So, so let me ask you one, 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 one other thing, because as you're talking, it's just uh, so many questions, and, and but you're helping walk us through this is so critical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, has do you anticipate any change at all because of the change of the federal administration? More cooperation? I, I, that's what I, oh yeah, we are. We are hoping for that. We are hoping because I'm wondering, you know, uh, Kristen Clark over the Civil Rights Division with the AG's office, right? You know, Benita Gupta, Deputy AG, not to mention, I mean, Mary Garland here, there, but I'm just wondering and, if, and, and, and I'm going to see, we have a new EPA director as well, Mike. That, that's it, that's it, the brother, yeah. right? Yeah, so, yeah. so we are expecting more. We, I, because you know, they know what's going on, they know what's going on. In fact, when Vice President Harris came to Flint, this was during election time, I, I met with oh, her and talked with her about that. I do remember that. About that. And I'm hoping for more cooperation just because uh, uh, when all of this took place, Biden was the, the vice president. So it's not like this is new. You know, it's not like they have Ooh. to say what's going on. And so those relationships are there. And, and that's what we're counting on. And we're counting on it for Flint. <laughs> you know, we're counting on it for Jackson. I was, t- you know, I'm. I- 
we're, we're counting on this in so many places around the country because we do have that relationship. We do have the, the, well, the we, administration. We saw we saw what's happening in Mississippi with Tate Reeves. I wish he would finally take that dead animal off his head. While, while, while the people in Jackson don't have water, he ran around trying to close the last uh, uh, clinic where somebody can terminate a pregnancy. This is an all out war and well, we, we will win when we organize. Well, let's look at what I'm going to tell you what the Republicans are doing right now or trying to do, because uh, uh, Dr. Caldoun, she is the medical person for the state, black, a black female doctor. They want to press. They said she should be charged like Snyder should be charged for telling people to wear masks for putting. Oh, oh, yeah, you, you saw that. I mean, it's yeah. just like what? I mean, but, but see, the beautiful thing about it is that like any other engine in a car that's ultimately a, a, a piece of uh, trash, you're going to keep flooring this engine until it blows up. Yeah. yeah. See, people don't understand. It looks it looks bad and it is bad and it might get a little worse and then it gets better. This is what they don't understand <laughs> because it's going to drive. I truly believe that we would. This is driving us back to who won't be the same as the reconstruction period. But part of our challenge, and I'm sure you have talked yourself until you were white in the face, yes, trying to help people understand why it is important to register to vote. It isn't the only solution. It's not. If there hadn't been a change in the administration, you wouldn't be now able to press as we organize outside to continue to exactly. press to do this. But people have to understand that this, we're not going to get anything. We, we have to fight for it all. We got to fight for it all. And all we are not taking our foot off the accelerator. That, that's part of this, the, the plan as well. But I mean, when you ask, really getting this message, people need to know, because if they don't know, they can't do anything. And that's been our biggest, you know, that's been our biggest obstacle is getting people to know. Now, do you think the judge is going to do anything differently? No, no, no it's I not mean, going to happen. It's difficult, but, though. But I think that maybe if the government position changes, and I'm assuming that it will, mm -hmm. um, particularly since the Biden administration, not saying they're going to come in riding like heroes, because as you said, it was the Obama administration. Right. On that watch. But I think one of the things that's very clear is the Democratic Party is on the verge of disintegration, too, if there isn't something delivered. And, and unlike a vote in the Senate for an infrastructure bill, this is something an administrative agency can do something about. So, exactly. we, so what do we need to do? And, to and, so, and, up on the EPA? and we really need to pay attention to what's going on with EPA. We've met okay. with with Regan. We've had a great meeting with him, okay. and um, we and we we met with the COVID task force as far as making. We did that yesterday, okay. you know, talking about that. And um, you know what? And and one of the things they're doing is you know shea moisture. Yes. Okay, so if you go to shademoisturefund.com, yes. they're giving $1,000 to barber and beauty shops. Uh, they're going to give $1,000 to barber and beauty shops that have information about COVID. Yesterday when we met, only 200 had signed up. And these are for black beauty and barber shops. Of course. You know, we, one of the things we also need to push on is when they talk about putting things in non-traditional places, those are not non-traditional places for us. Exactly. So they need to be, you know, when they first make these plans, those places that they call quote unquote non-traditional need to be in the plan right from the beginning. You That's don't do something and then say, oh, wow, maybe we need to go to these non-traditional places that are traditional places for us. If you're really trying to impact, have impact 
in our communities. And that's what we need to be fussing and fighting about as well. We really do. It's funny because when uh, when I was talking with, with Karen, she said something about what is Flint going to look like in 10 years after the water crisis. Yes. I said, the rate they're going, it'll be a, a predominantly white city because they're trying to get us out of here. That's always been the goal is to what change is our form of government and, and What's hmm. the, what would be the, uh, the, they're going to use it as a bedroom community. I mean, I'm trying to think what population will be coming in and what, where, where well, they want to make it a, a university, a university town and they call it the uh, creative community. I don't know what, uh, you know, I think I'm creative. Yeah. Here. No, no, no. That's the point of entry. That's what right. they do. Yeah. Uh, but, but as you look, it was almost like they didn't care how much our water bills were. If you can afford to pay the water, then you can afford to stay here when our water was eight times the national average. So if you're a black person or any other person of color that if you can afford that, I guess you're, I guess you're okay. We'll let right. you stay right. You know those kinds of things. Uh, but as they continue to buy up our property on the North side of town, mm. you know, those kinds of things are happening. This, this uh, is, this is the game plan we've seen over and over again. I mean, we're not going to win unless and until we come together right and recognize this yeah and you talked about we've got a i mean we've got to vote we've got we have to, to we have to vote yeah. well, one would also argue perhaps the water source was moved because they they saw the lovely place that flip was positioned in and exactly. they wanted, they wanted to destroy it because we've seen this we've been talking about that from tulsa you know which was out right. To Mount Bayou, to all of the places throughout the, you know, Ooh, when we all of our res all of our assets were gotten rid of. I yeah. mean, we this didn't have our own garbage trucks. We don't have our own lawnmowers. They got rid of our golf courses. I mean, our parks were given to the county. I mean, all of these kinds of things well, yeah, were given yeah. to the county. And yeah. our our last two main uh, assets were we sold water. We sold water to the cities in the county, and that's the reason. So from selling water to buying water, yeah, mm. and, and and the hospital, you know, we have a city hospital, and those things that you know. So those were the last two things we've had. And what was Karen doing? I, I said, I want our pipe back. I'm getting that water pipe back. I know that's right. Oh, we've got to get rid of her. Uh, yeah, you're not selling the hospital. She sounded but, but none, of that, none of that could have happened if people showed up to vote for these local electors. And, and listen to this. So we have 61, right. 61 precincts in Flint. I won 46, the 46 black ones. So this is a turnout. This was a turnout. War. It was a turnout. And white Republicans, because my opponent was endorsed by the Republican Party. Oh, of course. Of the Republican Party. So white people came out in, in record number when they of usually come. Republicans usually don't get involved in the election because it's a democratic city, no. you know, for the most part. No, and so, they, yeah. so that's what happened because I told I wasn't going to be quiet. I wasn't and, going and, to be quiet because I was but not. And probably peeled enough black voters off right. propaganda exactly. to get close enough to steal. Right, right. Well, you know, they say, oh, they, they steal money. I said, right. how many black folk, you know, get to stay at home in the comfort of their home if they stole some money? Come on. <laughs> you know, what makes me so special? I get to I get to steal some money and stay at home with my family, walk around in my little fuzzy slippers. Come on now. Come you know, on now. Ask Kwame Kilpatrick if you get to steal money and stay at home. Right. I, get to, 
still money. I said, they'd have marched me out of City Hall in handcuffs so fast and happy it would have made your head spin. Everybody would have known. <laughs> Everybody would have known. In fact, your name would be synonymous with it. Wait, that's right. right. They went to jail for stealing. If you had taken a pencil home, it would have been... Exactly. And so we, we got to just keep pushing. We've got to keep pushing. Uh, and, uh, you know, these crucial bills, we have to. We have to. And people need to be educated and informed about them. So and that's what our, our mayors, you know, I keep saying at our mayors, we're going to keep pushing for this. We are not going to, like I said earlier, put our foot off, take our foot off the pedal. We are not going to because we can't afford to. And, um, you know, the fight for infrastructure is real. It is. Well, I'm I'm going to be I'm right in the army too. So, um, we need to get at we need to get on the EPA short term. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure to Flint make sure they're doing that. We need to make sure people are paying attention and uplift the messages as as we're pushing them out there. You know, like I said, when I'm putting that message out, when I, our mayors is pushing these messages out, we need people to do that. Contact mm -hmm. your, your 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 congressperson. No contact them. You know, they're there for a reason. They are there to be your voice in D.C., your con your congressmen right. and your senators. And, and, and we in Flint, that's why I'm letting people know we have not had elected officials speaking up for us. And when they don't speak up, things don't change. When they don't speak up, every, the world thinks things are good. That's things right. are not good. We that's were right. on a great track and that's people right. didn't like it because black you know, I hired too many black people. I'm giving black contractors jobs. You know, I'm like, and okay, it, and people are black and they're and they are qualified, competent people. And it's a shame. It's a shame that it took till 2016 for a black company, the construction company, to get a multi-million dollar contract in the city of Flint. They still got contracts, but we can't have not a piece of the pie. No, you know, you I want the whole pie is mine. I've had it all this yeah. time. See, that's the attitude we had to have. Yeah, because it's a criminal enterprise. They don't want you to have anything. But I mean, you know, and we had to understand, we say this all the time, individuals don't beat institutions. So right. people who are following this on social media, who are watching this, who have who've watched this crisis over, as it has unfolded over the arc of now all this number of years, you know, set aside the idea that people sending crates of bottled water was somehow anything more than a crisis emergency fix. That's not a fix. That, right. I said, they act like they're doing us a favor. Right. And so, yeah. of water. What that, I said, I'm mm. so tired of having these bottles of water and plastic rolling on the floor. And my Speak house. on it. Could you, know, you understand? And, and then they didn't even have the decency to keep the water pods open while they finished changing the pipes. Didn't even have the decency to do that. You heard me right. And that's why, look, I said, I know who I'm a contact. I'm going to reach out to Karen Hunt. I know who to call. No I am sense. serious. No I mean, sense. you don't know what you have done for us in Flint, what you've done for African-American mayors. Because like I said, ours was done to us. But we have black communities all around the country that are suffering from the same things that oh, we no see question. going on in Flint. We are not in isolation and no. people need to know that. And so we need to uplift these messages, That's you know, and, 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 and check your media. Check your media because well, they will they will lie on you. And that's why black media, is, let me say it again, is so important because they shut us down. They don't want our message out. I mean, they want to give voter suppression. They want to give media suppression because they don't want us educated and informed. And right. we have to do, do you know, it's, it's a. And I do 
All right, so that I know they didn't want you to be uh, heard. I, that's right. I, I heard you though. It's penetrating, though. That's there. why I'm here. That's right. Anyone that has a platform, this is our responsibility because just like, you know, Dr. Carr and I jailbreaking the universities, which That's we right. are, shout out to you and thank you for that no. foundation. Uh, we've also jailbroken media. No um, question. You've done you, that. Have, you and I had an off mic conversation about, uh, and shout out to Kwame Brown for this. There's no longer a need for what they call mainstream media because people right. can talk directly to people. That's right. right. We don't need any, you know, we don't need to go to a priest and a conf <laughs> we don't need to go to somebody to tell us to say seven Hail Marys to absolve us of anything. We could talk directly to directly each other about the things that need to be done directly through social media through these platforms. The game has changed. So the I'm grateful that you knew you could reach out to me. First of all, let me say thank you for knowing. That's right. but, but this can't be the only spot. Everybody that has a platform has a responsibility to feed people, to make sure that we don't forget. That's Part of this, this process is remembering. I didn't forget Flint. And every time I didn't hear Flint, media shut media mm. because somebody should have been on the Flint case all the way through. That's so what right. happened at the New York Times and the Washington Post and LA right. all these places that we depend on to give us our information. So now since you failed, we need to turn our attention away from the places that aren't telling us the things that we need to know. Right. So, and look what happened. Look what happened, Karen. Then they put me on a radio station. Put me on a radio station, 9, 10 a.m. out of Detroit, which reaches the mm. entire state of Michigan. Oh, part sure. of Ohio, Canada. It's on an app, you oh, know, sure. stream, iHeart. I said, okay. And that's why I said, you are not going to shut me down. I said, all they did was give me a rest. They no. gave a rest to catch my energy and start <laughs> writing down notes and say, okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. All right. Yeah. Where can people hear you? Every Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Eastern Standard Time. We're on Facebook at 9, 10 a.m. Detroit Superstation. It's Black Talk Radio. No question. I, I've done interviews with 9, 10. In Detroit, it's 9, 10. In Chicago, yeah. it's the voice of the Negro or WVON. That's what they used to uh -huh. call it. Exactly. Everybody knows nine ten. If you if you in Michigan, and so we bring it to them every morning, Monday yes. through Friday. And so and, and that's I said, and that's how God works. So no uh, how you like me now? <laughs> <laughs> we love you. That's how we like you. We love, I love you. you too. I Listen, thank you, thank you for this, guys. Follow our mayors on Twitter. Follow that's Karen right. Weaver, Karen about Flint. Yeah, yeah I'm resurrect the name of Karen. Y'all gonna start calling the right. people women and Becky and Amy like oh, you. Y'all done taking it back. Y'all done taking it back. Y'all done taking it back. Revive and miss. Oh, I saw that. Right. That's right. It's there. We got it. We got all the hashtags. And you said revive and miss. Right. Thank you so Thank much. You. Um, this was so important. And we're gonna stay in touch because we always do. And I, I appreciate Thank you. Doc. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on this for sure. And, um, yeah. Dr. Carr, you know, uh, this is our last live session for the month. Yes. We'll be back live and we're going to not, you know, we're going to do little things throughout because he and I are uh, committed to building oh, the, the building the world that we want to live in. So, yes. you know, there'll still be things posted uh, yes. in this space. So do yes. come back Saturday at noon is going to 
be something here. We'll have something. Yeah, we're we'll, we'll gonna be live. We'll, we'll, we'll have something. But yeah, no. Sure. And, and we need to take time because it takes time to build. You know, it's we can't constantly be running our mouths. We have to also be in the, in, the, in the lab planning and and, and right. building. That's right. Uh, so, I, I do want to mention part of part of what we do, what we've been doing weekly. And first of all. Again, I won't never stop doing this. And I want everybody has to do this as well. In addition to hitting those likes, getting that algorithm, wreck, destroy the YouTube algorithm, please. Because I mean, at one point early on, we we're talking about 100,000 people subscribing. We way past that now. It's time to go and kick it up to a million. Let's just now, I mean, let's, and as you said, we see our brother Kwame Brown, who's just keeping it real, talking more and more people coming. Guess what? Keep the momentum in this space. We know it's, it's, it, we've gone long, but do that. And I want to thank you again because, and I agree with uh, Karen Weaver. I agree with Dr. Weaver, with Mayor Weaver. What you have done, not only on Saturdays, and this is why I told you off, offline, you work every day. And then not only work every day, but you're talking with our people. You build a community every day, Monday through Friday, to sustain that level of intensity. It is exhausting. And so between Saturdays, you know, I'm doing other stuff, but to, for you to do that every day. So listen, y'all. We got to protect Karen Hunter at all costs because understand that even though, you know, I get to read and think and, and, and jot down some notes and then we have a conversation. She don't never stop working. So, you know how you support somebody like that? You support somebody like that. It's really that basic. <laughs> that means you got we got to surround her with resources and we're going to bust this out. You understand? Bust it out because they're scared now. That's why they're passing laws that don't mean nothing, like what happened in Texas and Florida. They don't mean anything. You can't enforce it. That's why they're messing with little girls in Mississippi, telling them they can't be the valedictorian and salutatorian. They're terrified now. Guess what? We're about to give you something to be scared of for real. And so I, I do want to end with this because we didn't, at least for me, a couple of things. This anti-1619 stuff, please understand that it has nothing to do with content. I pulled this little pamphlet. It's called Alternatives to Afrocentrism. This is from the Center for the New American Community, Manhattan Institute. The reason I raised, because they, I was there as a graduate student and then as a young teacher in those curriculum wars of the late 1980s, early 1990s. This was published in the early 90s. Y'all, Some of y'all remember the African-centered education movement that they fought against. In fact, in talk about Michigan, Detroit. Kwame Kilpatrick, K. Lovelace, I'm thinking about my man M. Zay Nwabi, um, all the people, the Aisha Shule, the W.B. Du Bois Academy, the African Senate schools, they went to war. They even had elected school board officials. And the pushback was everywhere. It was in New York, it was Portland, Oregon, it was Michigan. They said, y'all can't put this African stuff in the curriculum. Y'all can't put this. And my man Asa here now ancestored, um, all that. This was a pamphlet. They had a meeting and they put together uh, a critique this would be the anti-CRT of the 1990s. In other words, this wasn't new. But unlike now, it's nothing that is just topical about it. In fact, they had a, a last section, what every student should know. And they put that, they went and got different people to suggest books. What books should you do with black people? And I'm just saying this to say that even those people who are saying we're out here fighting on the black side. If you're saying you're fighting on the black side and you're doing something new, you're not being honest. You're not being honest. We have to have the momentum of memory. So when you look at something like this and you see people suggesting uh, um, um, from slavery to freedom, uh, suggesting before the Mayflower, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, uh, and maybe maybe we'll talk about this. And Senator Carol Mosley Braun has book selections. Very interesting. But yeah. these people were a hit squad. 
and the last thing is, remember last week we talked about Fred Gray, Professor Hunter, and yeah. we talked about him. And I mentioned that I'm not going to get up and, and look for it uh, when they got those uh, cars and they couldn't get the cars insured during the Montgomery's bus boycott. And I mentioned a brother, uh, T.M. Alexander, who was out of Atlanta. This is the only book T.M. Alexander ever published. The things I said to me, I say to you. So that's the autograph copy uh, where I found this many years ago. <laughs> T.R. T.M. In fact, let me just let me just in fact, let me just read from the citation to Theodore Martin Alexander Sr. by Hugh Gloucester, who was the president of Morehouse. He they he got an honorary doctorate from Morehouse in 1970. Theodore Martin Alexander Sr., you are a Morehouse man all the way. A native of Montgomery, Alabama, you received your early education in the public schools of that city. Immediately after you graduated from honors with honors from Morehouse, you married and went into business for yourself. Eventually, you became the founder and president of Alexander and Company, a general insurance agency. Goes on. He, he ran for uh, office in the South. He ran for alderman from the Seventh Ward in Atlanta, and then he ran for the state Senate. And Hugh Gloucester says, although you lost, lost both of these elections, you helped to break down the barriers of segregation in state elections and pioneered in efforts to open the way for the current political power of black people. It's important to understand without this guy, you don't get a Karen Weaver. You don't get a Keisha Lance Bottoms. You don't get a, you, you name it, a, a Chokwe Lumumba in Jackson, along with John Wesley Dobbs. Y'all should know that name, John Wesley Dobbs. If you know Maynard Jackson, you know John Wesley Dobbs. And we'll we talk about that another day. You helped to establish the Negro Voters League in Atlanta. Now, here's where I'm going. You also worked closely with the late Dr. Martin Luther King. When there was a vacancy in the pastorate of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, your home church in Montgomery, you helped to arrange Dr. King's trial sermon and you gave the charge during his installation. On that occasion, you spoke more truly than you knew when you said Martin Luther King will be put a plumb line on this city and shade the cradle, cradle of the Confederacy from center to circumference before he leaves. E.R.M. Alexander was a brother from Montgomery who that was his home church. That's how Martin Luther King ended up at Dexter Avenue. But here's the, I'll end with this paragraph. He says, when the Montgomery bus boycott bogged down and Dr. King could not get insurance for 19 station wagons used in the transporting people to and from work, you risked your agency and your young company by providing liability coverage through Lloyd's of London. When the mm. Christian Leadership Conference moved to Atlanta, you gave the organization space in your building until this agency could find permanent accommodations. Ladies and gentlemen, people get up in front of you and tell you they're teachers or they're leaders and you should listen to them. And they say they're the first one to do this. And they've you should probably don't mute them. Just turn them down a little bit and go looking for the solutions. Not like we look for. Uh, we started with uh, Ophelia Settle Egypt. We're ending with Doctor with Mr. T. M. Alexander. The solutions often lie in the things we already did. So if you're in business, we don't care whether you're making a lot of money. Would you put your neck on the line to ensure the company cars, uh, the cars black people put their money in, so that we can win together? Individual achievement don't impress us. So I'm just glad I got I got a, I got a chance to find this between last week and this week. That's why I put that up. The goal, the goal over the next 10 years is to build the systems that will be unbreakable. unbreakable. That are, and as I mentioned, 100 years after we're here, after we're no longer here physically, there are going to be people that will be able to plug and play all of the things that we are imagining today. And it requires all of us to put out, bring our little brick to the to this uh, building here uh, because we need all hands on deck. So all I just, hands. Say thank you to everyone. Thank you, Dr. Weaver, of course, for jumping in today. And all of the folk from all over the world, 
who are part of this, the largest Africana studies classroom in the world. In the world. And the master teacher himself, uh, who is gathering, you are gathering, this is better than the Avengers. The, the people that you're bringing to the table, I'm no, like, no. Yeah, it's amazing. The I'm Avengers could never yeah. defeat black people. In fact, they get right. blacker every every damn uh, movie. The Avengers turned, no. <laughs> they took Captain America out. You know, ain't much left. Come on. And and uh, uh, Uriah has already changed it to to uh, Jadudi. J- how do you Jahudi. say it? Judy. Judy, yes. Jahudi. Jehudi. already changed it from Thoth to Jehudi. Jehudi, Jehudi. fixed the that symbol, and made it African. The yeah. symbol of intelligence in ancient Egypt. His, now, his sister, his wife, sister, the female counterpart, her name is Sashet. S-E-S-H-A-T. Sashet, or sometimes they put an I in. Sashet, the word for writer, for scribe in ancient Egypt, and Dr. Beatty will teach everybody that. You come to narrative. The word is S-E-S-H, sesh. That means to write, to be a writer, to be a scholar. So, of course, we know that Professor Karen Hunter is a sesh. She's a writer, in addition to being everything else. That having been said, in Egyptian language, Dr. Beatty will teach this, when you see a T, they put a T on, that makes it in terms of language feminine. That puts the feminine on. You see the T. Sinet means sister, right? Sin, brother, put the T on. The word for writer is sesh. His wife is Seshet. Now they say he's the symbol. And when you read Western literature, ancient Egypt, they always push him. This is the inventor of writing. Man, y'all better go back and look. Because see, unlike the West, ain't no such thing as women and men separate. We are part of a community. And y'all going to stop with this other stuff. Because if you didn't separate yourself out, you wouldn't have to be talking about some intersections. <laughs> that's why that's why I don't deal with intersectionality because you you chopped it up in the who chopped it up in the first place. You know what? Y'all go talk to them in the social structure. We're dealing with governance over here. So maybe we need to put Sashet with Jehudi over there. <laughs> we gotta balance that out. Jureas, make that happen. All yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, let's, sorry. Let's, let's actually end with let's end where we began. Let's end where we began, y'all. heard them singing and thought they were satisfied. He did not hear the sound of hope in their songs. Sometimes they sang just to lighten their burdens. Love you. I'll Love see you. Too. I'll see you next week. And yeah, everybody yeah. else, we'll, you know, we'll we'll be we'll see you the second week of July live. Happy okay. early Juneteenth, but y'all gonna hear from us. <laughs> And 4th of July, too. What oh, is 4th of July? What is it? Happy birthday, Kareem, next week. Oh, it's happy birthday. Yeah, no question. And every other uh, Gemini who's celebrating a birthday. I, I know that's right. <laughs> All yep. right. Love you, Doc. Love you. Love you, too. Love you, too, Prof. See you. All right.